It is Sunday, August 7th, 8th? Something like that. 7th, uh, 7th, it's the 7th. <laughs> 2016. No, we got to pay attention to this part. I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> not necessarily. Um, and uh, Film Cult is back after uh, a long hiatus to uh, check out Quentin Tarantino's Hateful Eight. And uh, we're all paused at zero here. I think we're ready to go in three, two, one. Play. Oh, yeah. So uh, let's introduce who, who, who made it today. Uh, I'm Willie Greer. Yay. Michelle Rainier. Chris Henry. <laughs> Ron Lee. <laughs> And Dan Gildark up in Seattle. Hi, Dan. Hey, Dan. Hey. Hi, Dan. Hello, guys. Damon Gaynor and Michelle Davis were going to join us, but they drank the coffee and they're dead. Oh, no. (laughs) I drink the coffee specifically to not (laughs) fall dead asleep. (laughs) I'm eating the cookies to stay awake. So living in Portland, we were uh, most of us here. I think we're lucky enough to have caught this on the the road show, the seventy millimeter road show, at uh, the Hollywood Theater, which I think even Tarantino himself um, says is one of the best theaters in the country. Uh, unbelievable presentation, fucking gorgeous. Didn't get a program though. I guess we were too late for that. Tarantino incidentally showed up at one of the other screenings of the day um, before I saw it. Actually, mm, mm, bummer. Oh. In the Hollywood Theater. Yep. Unexpectedly. On a I, Tuesday. I was there. On a Tuesday, of all things, of all days. You were there, Ron? Nope. Oh. <laughs> None of us were there? Yeah, but for any projects Alas. there, though, he's pretty... Oh. He's one of the projectionists at the Hollywood. He was pretty stoked. Uh, so, he was there the night that Tarantino showed up? Um. Yeah, I think, yeah, I think he was. Cool. Historical. Mm-hmm. So I, I did get to so I've seen it twice as well. Uh, what once was it at like a regular Cineplex, which was kind of which was kind of weird. Um, and then I saw it at the uh, Cinerama up here in, in Seattle, and it was an amazing projection. Up here, and just the differences in the two two different theaters, and I think this is like one of the things Tarantino was worried about in in projecting it that. Uh, it's almost becoming a lost art, you know, having true projectionists that that can that can project film and stay on top of it. Mm. It was really weird. So the first first uh, screening I saw at the Cineplex, like the, the projection was just off, like it wasn't aligned properly. So it, it really affected the uh, you know the experience of it. It's a crime. And the sound just wasn't as good. So, but just having it, it was just really enlightening seeing the difference in between a, you know, poor projection and, and a perfect projection was just so different and so much more immersive in, in, the, in the right projection. Well, why pay to go to the theater if it's just going to look better on your TV? Yeah, right. Well, it was, I mean, that said, I'm sure, I mean, it's better than, than on your TV, you know, even the, even the poor projection was, but, um, yeah, I mean the difference between TV and, and the the right projection was 
just night and day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting, actually. My, my experiences lately at the Cineplex is that my TV actually looks better. Um, because especially oh, wow. with, with widescreen movies, um, and mm-hmm. I think this is one of the things that you noticed seeing it in a theater like that, is that the screen is actually wider. So there's a point to making things in widescreen because the screen gets bigger mm-hmm. and it's cooler and more epic. Whereas in 99.9% of the theaters that you go to now, the screen gets smaller and it's letterboxed and it's a dingy shade of dark gray. It's not even black. Um, mm-hmm. And it's it's just lame. Um, you know, I, there's I just a bunch remember, of people around. Yeah, that, that inhibits my experience yeah. too. Sometimes crying babies, yeah. you know, I mean, you just can't get that at home. Yeah. I want to be the only one on my cell phone. Damn it! Yeah. <laughs> so we open up with uh, a whole first act of landscape porn, basically. Like he's he's pretty much giving us what we expect in the first forty minutes of the movie, and then we wind up confined in this. Uh, enclosed space in the haberdashery but uh, it's pretty awesome he still manages to make really good use of this frame this uh, 236-1 frame uh, with the actors just kind of placing him around in the space which Carpenter also did a great effect in the thing which we'll have to make a lot of comparisons to of course when talking about this movie I was going to ask if you'd heard that uh, Pam and I watched the thing again lately partly because of stranger things but partly because mm-hmm. somebody was like oh there's so many comparisons between a flight and the thing <laughs> like okay it's pretty great isn't it the thing oh yeah oh my god yeah one of my favorites so when he said he said that right that this was the, yeah. the thing in reservoir dogs were the, the biggest influences on this and he had said previously that, Res- that the thing was the biggest influence on reservoir dogs so it all comes back to the thing absolutely what? and uh check out check out ob's costume here it's a very uh mccready-esque the hat and the goggles <laughs> i love that hat mccready went by our initials too he was rj mccready yeah, those dingle balls are really extraordinary. Yeah, do you think there was like a functional purpose for dingle balls back in the, <laughs> that era? <laughs> wonder if he has air shocks on that stagecoach too. That'd be pretty pretty cool. <laughs> so something, something cool about that opening scene is I, I know um, is a big John Ford fan. And I, I was thinking about a quote that John Ford had that like, the three most beautiful things in film are that you could film in a film are mountains – Two people dancing and horses running. Mm. So we have two, two of those three things in this movie. Ain't bad. There's no bit with two people dancing, huh? Not really. I feel like they're... I don't know. They do a dance of sorts. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> oh, yes, they do. <laughs> There's the neck dance, yeah. <laughs> When you said neck dance, I just imagined, well, I can't show you what I imagined because I can't describe it, but yeah. <laughs> but it's in your head. It's in my head. <laughs> Trust me, it's a Never total mind. neck dance. <laughs> it was a reference that could never happen. So yeah, one of the uh, 
ways that this movie is kind of linked to Reservoir Dogs. Um, yellow is kind of Tarantino's signature color. It's, I mean, he likes um, black, white, and primaries pretty much in all of his movies, uh, except in Glorious Bastards. But there's usually two or three that are dominant. In Reservoir Dogs, it's, um, I would say, black, white, and kind of a mustard yellow and orange, which I think in Reservoir Dogs was meant to be kind of a tip-off that Mr. Orange was the cop. And we don't ever go full-on yellow here either. It's always this kind of mustardy, but it is everywhere. So this one, I think, has got, like, black... Uh, sorry, white, brown... No, white, blue, and yellow, uh, which is similar to Jackie Brown. Jackie Brown's a very blue movie. It's almost cool. He's got yellow in the corners, and underneath, it's like the shot. Totally. Was Tarantino ever a Cub Scout? Good question. Google it. Uh, that's a good question. Was Tarantino ever a Cub Scout? So I guess they use the... Uh... Just a fun fact, they use the N-word uh, 65 times hmm. in this film, which is about half of what he used in uh, Django Unchanged. Change what has the uh, oh, Jesus. the record for the most uses <laughs> of the N-word. I, I'm not sure I get it. I, I want to I wanna think I get it, but I'm not sure I get it. Like, is uh, his why? fetish for the word? Yeah, the, yeah his fetish for, for it. Yeah, no, he's definitely interested in race relations. Only reason it doesn't pop up in uh, like Inglorious Bastards is he's exploring a different uh, yeah. sort of racial persecution there. I uh, can't yeah. remember if there's a whole bunch of uh, there's got to be a lot of Jew slang in that. But um, yeah, no, it's interesting. I mean, like he does, you know, he uses a lot of uh, I guess you could say black exploitation tropes in his mm-hmm. movies. Mm-hmm. Um, Maybe Jackie Brown, you could maybe call black exploitation, even though it's pretty pretty high end. Um, but yeah, no, that's a question <laughs> that many people ask about him. I guess is is does he have the right to to use this stuff so liberally? Yeah, it's interesting. I, I feel like he almost increased it after after he, after he got criticized for using it. He almost increased it to increase it. I don't know. I, th- I think he really pushes back on any, any, um, anybody trying to lock down like what he can do as an artist or artistically. Mm. I would definitely agree with that. Mm. Okay. I get it. <laughs> <laughs> I now officially get it. No, I'm not... I feel like, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, go for it. Oh, just, just to finish that thought. I, I just feel like, um, I don't know. I mean, of course, of course, then there's argument of what's in context and you know not in context. Like if it's working organically mm-hmm. and what he's what he's creating, and I feel for the majority of the time that it is. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And speaking of context, um, a lot of people have taken issue with the female character getting punched uh, in the face a whole bunch of times. <laughs> What do you guys think about that? Yeah, it's a lot of casual violence towards the only woman in the movie, but yeah, 
I think Tarantino yeah. likes to beat up on women. <laughs> well, he he also likes women to do some beating. Mm-hmm. And yeah, well, maybe he wants to have his cake and eat it too. <laughs> I don't know. It's hard to it's hard to know what's in someone's head. I mean, possibly how many of us even Oops. really know what's in our heads. So <laughs> I'm gonna just tell you, I think it's pretty feminist that she gets punched in the face a bunch of times because she's a murderer being taken to be hung. And yeah. if she was treated like a princess, that would be sexist. Well, yeah, it's like I'll buy if that. She was, yeah. Nobody would yeah. have a problem with it if she was another guy. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, yeah so the one more... thing um, that kind of makes us, that makes that topic come up really is the fact that we don't really know what she's done. We know how much There's she's a... worth, mm. but uh, oh, yeah. that's all we Sorry, have. Sorry, to... John, John Ford shot of the horses there. Oh, yeah, yeah. Running. Sorry. What? <laughs> oh, so John we're, Ford we're shot of the horses. Yeah, um, we are. the horses running. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. Okay, I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, are there cool. dead people on top? Yeah. Oh my God. That's Sam Jackson's bounty. He brought him in dead. Oh, that's right. Okay. Um, but yeah, where the hell was <laughs> I? So, um, yeah, no, it's it's the fact that we don't know what she's done. We're able to kind of empathize with her as much as we can. We know she's a murderer. That's about all we know. And it isn't until the uh, the climax that we really find out what she's capable of. And uh, she's one of the last men standing. She's she mm-hmm. she dishes it out better than she takes it. It's mm-hmm. true. And it, you could probably say that maybe she's consciously baiting him to punch her so that she'll look more roughed up when she gets there, and the and her gang mm. will be more pissed off. Mm. Mm. That could be part of her plan. Yeah, it would fit her character. Is there is there any particular significance to her black eye looking like shoe polish? <laughs> I, 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 it it kind of looks so bad it seems like they did it on purpose <laughs> like he's got a million dollar budget but he's just oh shit who's got a sharpie he's very yeah. into the the Jean-Luc Godard uh, pointing out the artifice of, of cinema so okay yeah yeah that's part of it oh so, so back to the misogyny thing I, I had a I had a really hard time with the film you know especially with the ending um with her, what they what they did with her character, and mm. I, so I listened to an interview with with Tarantino. He was talking about how when he first wrote it, like he couldn't, he had a really hard time killing her at the, at the end, mm. and um, so he took it out. Like a couple of first drafts, he like took it out and didn't kill her that way in the end. And then he um, once he felt that he knew her character. In, in a true way, like mm. totally understood her, mm-hmm. and he didn't have a problem hanging her. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I, I thought that just the fact that he was acknowledging—I mean, he's smart enough to acknowledge, you know, the misogyny and yeah. racism in his film. So he's not. Yeah. I don't know. There's not a. I don't. There's not a heavy handedness to it. I just feel like it's—you know—it's all very well thought out. So he's not. It's not gratuitous. Yeah, I feel that way too. Well, it's a little gratuitous, but in a that I was. mean Tarantino's kind of I mean, he's, you know, he he's deliberately gr- gratuitous. Yeah, no, it's very much And it all fits, but he goes as over the top as he can go while, you know, within the confines of making it all fit. For sure. Sorry, Willie. What... No, I was just totally I was just agreeing with you. Um I mean, he likes he likes the extreme storytelling tools. Yeah, you know, violence definitely being his favorite. One of mine too. I think hanging her made sense because it's sort of the end of the film, and that's where we begin, hmm. and that's where we end. It's kind of a happy ending, you know. <laughs> 
John Ruth got to fulfill his job. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Something it was for John. Ruth. <laughs> something worked out. Well, and everybody dies. Yeah, yeah. I probably don't need to point this out, but this is just a brilliant use of a bit of music here. <laughs> What's it's a what? It's brilliant use of music. I love mm, this. Mm. It's kind of saloony. I can yeah. imagine yeah. playing this in a western yeah. saloon. <laughs> and uh, on the subject of music, uh, very, very famously, this is the first time Tarantino has hired a composer to work with him. And uh, he finally picked Morricone after a couple of Morricone. movies of just lifting his music from other films, which to me is a sacrilege. Um, but yeah, a lot of original music and uh, a couple of bits that were uh, not used in Morricone's score for The Thing. One piece of music that was used in The Thing, unfortunately. Um, but it's nice to see some of those uh, those tracks see the light of day. I also think that Carpenter made the right choice. I don't think those tracks were particularly appropriate for The Thing. I'm sure Morricone would disagree. But so, how do you feel about the score in general, Willie? I fucking love it. Um, it's it's classic Morricone. He's very good at uh, creating kind of an epic melody with just like three or four notes. That's one of my my favorite things that he does. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, no, it's about time that Morricone won a fucking competitive Oscar. This is his first. He got a lifetime achievement Oscar several years ago. Um, people thought that he would have won for Once Upon a Time in America, but um, <clears throat> they didn't uh, submit his nomination in time. I think the the distributor, oh. some kind Oopsie. of yeah, some bureaucratic snafu. Huge bummer. How old is Ennio? You know, he's eighty something. Eighty something. Wow, he's like five hundred and fifty fucking scores. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty crazy. It's crazy. Yeah, so, so um, I know when Tarantino met with him. I heard this, he was talking on a podcast that he met with Marconi and, and um, he talked to him, you know, I was talking to him about using some pieces for, for Hateful Eight. And, um, and, you know, was saying that he had, he had thought about it and come up with some theme music for it. And um, turned to, you know, said that he could go ahead and that he wanted to hear it and he listened to it. And then he um, wrote a little bit more and wrote a little bit more. And eventually, you know, asked him to to score it. But it was it was interesting because he was talking about him, and had, and told Marconi that he was his favorite composer, and not not just you know not his favorite film composer, but his favorite composer that, that ever lived. And here, Marconi's like offering the score for this film for him, and Tarantino's pushing back a little bit because he um, Marconi had had asked him if he'd give him free reign to you know to write some of these themes and and truly score it. And I just thought it was so interesting that I, th- I think it's insight into Tarantino as a director and how much control he keeps over his pieces that he won't even let his mm-hmm. somebody score his damn film, you know, as, yeah. and somebody he respects like more than any other artist in the world, and still wouldn't let him just di- didn't walk in just wanting him to score his film like That's he had to be talked into it. It's mm-hmm. definitely out of his comfort zone. Is the yeah, but still, it's like what is Morricone going to give you a bad score? <laughs> right. <laughs> Well, that's the thing is like he loves he loves everything he does. So like it, I don't, yeah. So it's all about control, right? 
Did you ever find out if he was a Boy Scout? I looked it up. I didn't see anything that jumped out at me. <laughs> I might have to do some deeper research. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, also uh, one cool thing about this film, or and Morricone's score for it, is I believe he he scored the whole thing without seeing any of the footage, and uh, that is also exactly how he scored Once Upon a Time in the West. Um, people have tried and failed miserably to do that numerous times over film history and that was a case of it working out amazingly well they, there's that one um, shot at the stagecoach station or train station um, which is all choreographed and timed to the theme in like one crane shot and it's freaking amazing um, Goblin tried to do the same thing with Suspiria they wrote a whole score ahead of time and Dario Argento played it on the set um, but they eventually wound up rescoring the whole thing after it was shot anyway so Tarantino went to him and said I'd like you to score this movie I'm real specific about what I want it but you're not going to watch it <laughs> I'm, just, I'm trying to follow that train of thought there <laughs> I think that was more Morricone's decision than Tarantino's. I think he was just writing music based on the script, and it all wound up being. I was like, "Hey, fuck you! I don't totally need to fucking watch this." You know who I am? Exactly. I'm gonna write you Amazing Square without even seeing the thing. Pretty much. It's interesting. She's sort of such a snotty little kid in a way, but she's so tough. Tarantino said that he um, based her off of uh, Sadie Atkins from the Manson family. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, so there's a cool fact about the, um, so that stagecoach is called the Butterfield Overland Stage, which is the same as in 310 to Yuma, the film 310 to Yuma. Oh, nice. Did you guys just get to chapter two? I'm just making sure my timing is yes. in. Yeah. Same totally. here. Okay. <laughs> Never mind the jokes. Just do it. <laughs> Edging into uh, Jack Burton, John Wayne territory. More than a few times. Oh, look at the icicles on that horse's belly. Aww. He's like, why are we just staying around here? Are you sure I can't be CG? He's yeah. like, fuck you. <laughs> are you sure I can't be CG? <laughs> the two hitchhikers here are the... Uh, the last men standing oh. and really the only complication in the whole thing oh. if they hadn't showed up the uh, the gang probably would have just killed him and gotten oh. gotten Daisy back and in the end they are in cahoots
And in terms of honesty, I think, uh, who are we looking at here? I think um, John Ruth, uh, this guy Mannix, and who else? There's even one other character that isn't that doesn't have any secrets. Mm. Everything's kind of on the table with them. Mm. Yeah, it is interesting how initially Samuel L. Jackson is really convincing um, as being kind of like this hero, mm-hmm. but there's a bit of a giveaway that in, in that he's a bounty hunter. So, you know, there's some, right. Right. You know, evil there <laughs> or, or some <laughs> bloodlust. I guess Obi doesn't have any secrets either, but we don't really know anything about him. Mm. Poor guy. (laughs) I think this is where Winnebago's got the idea for sweet airbrush uh, murals (laughs) on the side. going back into Kurt Russell's career a little bit here. He's uh, been in an awful lot of westerns in film and television. I read recently that Kurt Russell was Walt Disney's last words. Really? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) He didn't even really know who he was. He'd just been cast in a Disney movie when he was like 12 years old. And that was the last thing anybody's (laughs) heard Disney say. (laughs) But um, he had an athletic career, I think, playing baseball, which um, got derailed by an injury, and he went into acting full-time. Had his first feature role, and it happened at the World's Fair with Elvis. Plays a kid that kicks Elvis in the shin, and then uh, winds up playing Elvis later on in life with John Carpenter. Yes. Dude, the synchronicities. But uh, cinematically, he was in uh, Tombstone, Bone Tomahawk. Was that uh, any good? I, I'm dying to see it. I haven't seen it okay. yet. I, I hear good, good things. Okay. Yeah. It's been like floating around in my Amazon queue. and it's like, mm. looks like Any, it, Anything with Kurt Russell, as far as I'm concerned, is... <laughs> eh, it's yeah. true. I recently watched oh. Overboard. and uh, What is that? That one's up. a little hard to watch. <laughs> <laughs> well, I heard somebody recut... Somebody just recut a trailer of it as, as a thriller. Yeah. Like Dead Calm or something? <laughs> yeah, it's a romantic comedy. Because <laughs> I mean, he kidnaps a woman. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty messed up. It's no Captain Ron, that's for sure. But I mean, you could, uh, I mean, like Escape from New York is pretty much a, a science fiction spaghetti western. And, uh, you know, Big Trouble in Little China was originally written as a western and uh, got rewritten for modern times. Mm. And then on, uh, on television, he did uh, The Virginian, Laredo, Guns of Diablo, The Red West, Gunsmoke, High Chaparral, Daniel Boone, and Legend of Jesse James. Dang. I'm just going to put in a plug for the computer wore tennis shoes, because that was a I major am. part of my childhood. <laughs> <Aww>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just remember, uh, it would, I just listened to a few Carpenter interviews, and he, he can't speak highly enough of... Kurt Russell, just um, his work ethic and the fact that he'll he'll do anything. He's just a workhorse. Like always hits his marks, always knows his lines. He's just 
you know, is just such a veteran. Is he still with Goldie Hun? Are they think so? I don't know. Hmm. I think so, but poor Goldie, didn't she get a lot of bad work done? Yeah. <laughs> haven't really seen her much these days. Oh, yeah. yeah, I haven't seen any recent photos. I'm going to give a, a, a report here presently. I suspect it may be upsetting. <laughs> hey, Siri, how fucked up is Goldie Hawn lately? <laughs> <laughs> Has she been working at all? Mm, Not to my knowledge. Mm. Oh no. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh no. But oh. let me see, let me see, let me see, let me see, let me see. Oh, oh man. That's bad. Oh, oh, oh dear. Yeah. Oh. It's like a scene in the thing. Yeah. <laughs> She's not working. Bummer. Yeah, that's... Yeah, no, it's really sad. It's I can't imagine being a woman in Hollywood. No. Ugh. Me neither. I don't recommend it. Pretty sure I'd lose my mind. <laughs> Get it away from me. Get it away. <laughs> <laughs> I don't ever want to see that again. <laughs> so kind of going back into... Um, Tarantino's career a little bit here. Um, this kind of Hateful Eight is I, I'm fond of it for a lot of reasons and one of them is it's, it, it, it marked the end of uh, Tarantino's revenge cycle. He had uh, had his crime movies um, which went up until Jackie Brown. Jackie Brown was uh, didn't do very well at the box office and got kind of lukewarm reviews from critics. In some ways I think it was kind of his The Thing. It's my um, favorite Tarantino mm-hmm. film. It's really fucking good. Mm-hmm. I, I must admit that at the time it came out in my early 20s and like fresh off the heels of Pulp Fiction that I was a little disappointed in it. I think I wanted another Pulp Fiction. Yeah. It and was, uh, you said everybody like, did. It's kind of like... Uh, eh. It was like Big Lebowski. When I watched that the first time, I was like, what the fuck is this crap? <laughs> <laughs> and then, you know, by the third time, I was like, I fucking love this. So like, yeah. that's the same with Jackie yeah. Brown. I was like... Well, what the... That was fucking boring. And then I watched it. I was like, oh, no, that's fucking awesome. That's great. It's a slow burn. Yeah, Yeah. sure. So he kind of went into uh, seclusion and I think a bit of a depression for a while. And um, when he came back, it was with uh, Cycle of Revenge movies, uh, which to me was definitely like Tarantino, like getting revenge on the audience for not accepting Jackie Brown and kind of saying, all right, well, I'm never going to give you anything close to Pulp Fiction ever again. And he gave himself permission to experiment and indulge as much as he wanted to. But he finally yeah. got that out of his system. Yeah, I think that early criticism hit him pretty hard. And I, I know mm. he's getting a lot of criticism, too, for the acting. Hmm. In Jackie Brown? The acting really? in Jackie no, Brown? No, the acting that he was doing with uh, you know, oh. Rodriguez. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. With who? Taking, oh, taking oh, a, oh, yeah. Robert Rodriguez. Um, oh. Like, 
Desktodon. And- oh, he was actually he yeah. was really good at that. He was yeah. really creepy. That yeah. was my favorite. Yeah, he was Tarantino performances <laughs> yeah, from Desktodon. I agree. He was well directed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think he said that was the first time that that he felt that he'd um, actually become another person. Mm. Like he became became that character on set, and he mm-hmm. he said everything before that for him was pr- like an act like an acting exercise, and that was the first time that he really got to a point, mm. you know, deep acting. I could see that. Yeah, I think it's, his best role is probably in this movie, though. That's. Uh... <laughs> his narrator. Uh, oh, <laughs> his accent is fantastic. <laughs> I didn't even recognize him. I yeah, totally so thought that was a tree, man. I was like, sorry, what? Oh, I was just um, going to just use this spot to talk about the, you know, as a segue into the acting a little bit, and just how that was kind of how he came to all this. You know, he was a, you know, he was a struggling actor. Uh, he was taking acting classes the whole time. He was working at Video Archive. Is it Archive or Archives? And uh, I believe it's plural. Plural, okay. Video, yeah, Video Archives. But he was, um, yeah, he was a struggling actor. So he, I mean, he really studied the craft of acting for a long time. So it's really, he says that's how he, you know, he learned about story and um, pacing and and um, really writing. So I mean, he really, just a little bit I've read about his process in writing these things like he really you know becomes the the actors like plays out the parts in his mind while he's playing it oh and he's acting through the parts as he's writing them and he says the um you know the characters write themselves is what he says he, he basically says he like channels the characters is how he writes but i, I thought it was really interesting just um cause just because so few especially nowadays so few directors come you know are actor friendly directors mm. or come at it from that from that direction and it's, it's something i really respect and something that I, you know i'm trying to do do the same thing try to understand the acting side of um film to get to get truly good performances like just understanding process in a deeper way yeah just know every part of your medium so yeah for sure and it's just crazy <laughs> that a lot of directors don't sorry <laughs> Makes me want a horse laugh. <laughs> um, sorry, Dan. Oh no, yeah, I, I, was, I was done. Yeah, I just it's um, yeah, it's cool. I think I think it's really cool. He came came out at all this. So has and, and o- that, through that door has Ob been like screaming and yelling this entire time? Because I keep I didn't want to interrupt anybody. It was like, is that screaming from the movie or is like something really weird going on outside? I can't. It's hard to keep track of everything. No, Screaming? someone's totally being killed outside, but we can't stop. Or I, I, I wasn't going to say we should stop. <laughs> okay. I don't think we have the technology <laughs> to stop. We're past eighty second. I know where I am. Anybody check out Walter Walton Goggins' uh, comedy role in the new HBO show, Vice Principal? No. With uh-uh. Danny McBride. Uh-uh. Is it good? No. <laughs> <laughs> Is he not funny? Uh, I mean, he's. it's just not a good show, I don't think. I wa- yeah. But I watched like 15 minutes of it and then turned it off, so. Mm. That's not a fair assessment. <laughs> 
Uh, Have you guys watched his other? What's his other series that he's been doing for years? Oh, Justified. Yeah, oh. I hear he's he's amazing. In that. Yeah, I tried yeah, to get into that, but there's about like it. it's like six freaking seasons of this. <laughs> Is it kind of slow or? No, I, I actually like the first season oh. a lot because I like Timothy Oliphant and oh. it's got a brilliant marketing campaign. I love all of its uh, oh yeah teaser commercials. Yeah. Oh, I just realized that was classy. So that show was based off of a Elmore Leonard. Oh, hey. uh, yeah. Story, right? So it kind of comes full circle to Elmore Leonard. Because which Elmore Leonard was Jackie Brown based on? Was that Rum uh, Punch? Or? Rum Punch, yeah. Yeah. That's fucking beautiful, man. Mm. It really is. Where did they shoot this? Anybody know? Good uh, t- Telluride. I think outside of Telluride. In Colorado? Oh. Yeah. Ugh. I think they had, they actually, when they got up there, I think they had a lot of, uh, the weather was actually better than it was supposed to be. So I think they had to sit around for a while, like waiting for the weather to turn huh. bad. <laughs> <laughs> the same reason we have to wait so long for Game of Thrones. Yes. Oh. Winter's coming. But it's not winter where they're shooting yet. Right. So. Oh. <laughs> Some, like, Stupid Croatia nature. Or something, yeah, right? I this, yeah. yeah. Um, I love the take on the Mexican accent in this so much. <laughs> Cabron! <laughs> it's just so... Oh. Yeah, it's pretty great. <laughs> Everyone's kind of got their, like, uh, their condescending, friendly voice... Um, mm-hmm. Scoggins in there is kind of like, well now we got me talking politics <laughs> and uh, <laughs> Tim Roth kind of takes his accent to like a Monty Python level yeah, yeah he doesn't really need to I'm not sure why he does that it's just like he's playing a character in his mind I guess his character is playing a character isn't his code a little it's a little parka thing thing-esque yeah. Parka oh, yeah. Thing. yeah oh yeah oh yeah it's like i have no idea why this gag works so many times but it does yeah it's just something he's so good at too just the the cinematic details that are just um bad humor I remember even like seeing it in the theater, just the weird like stereo placement of Michael Madsen's off screen voice like made it like twice as funny almost. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> 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 <Totally>. <laughs> You'll notice a lot of uh spotlights directly overhead shining down especially on actors and stuff and that's kind of a robert richardson trademark who's been uh tarantino's dp since kill bill uh he used to work for oliver stone with whom uh there's some bad blood with tarantino and i kind of wonder if that wasn't the little revenge act to kind of stealing his uh his dp yeah he shot natural born killers right yeah it's awful terrible adapted the script completely rewrote it tarantino was not happy well, he took his name off of it, didn't he? Yeah, yeah. True Romance, you know, like, it, it really does feel as much like a Tarantino movie yeah. as a Tony Scott movie, which is kind of cool. Yeah. Yeah, I think True, True Romance worked really well. 
Um, yeah, I was noticing that that top down lighting with. Um, I just rewatched uh, Django Unchained and <laughs> was noticing the top down. It's in a lot of Scorsese too. Like I think I think uh, Richardson first worked with Scorsese on Casino, and it's those lights are full on banging in that movie. Mm-hmm. Was this his first movie without? <laughs> I just dumps it on the floor. <laughs> Is this his first movie without Sally Menke? Or was that? Um, I think Glorious Bastards was the last one. Oh, okay. So yeah, Django. Was she the editor? Yeah, she edited oh, everything. Yeah. Brilliant. Yeah. Pulp so Fiction. You said she had cancer. Oh no, oh, I was no. totally wrong about that. She, she actually had heat stroke. Yeah, oh, heat my stroke God. while hiking in Los Angeles. Oh, that sucks. Yeah, like the Laurel Canyon, she just plop. Wow. Oh. Yeah. That's terrible. Man. <laughs> and uh, Pulp Fiction was yeah. Cheers, Helen Menke. Um, Pulp Fiction was was named uh, the seventeenth best edited movie of all time by the Editors Guild, I believe. Oh wow! Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, the editing's amazing. That's the first time I, I just like when you start to notice people in credits, and I noticed that all my favorite movies had women for editors. Huh? I was like, huh? Interesting. Verna Fields, fucking Jaws, man! Holy shit! Well, and it goes back. I mean, the beginning of the film industry, it was pretty much all women. Editors, really? Oh, right. Because mm-hmm. nobody else wanted yeah. to do that. They thought it was yeah. just fucking staple it together. I don't care. Uh, well, they considered it to be similar to sewing. They, like it was, uh, <laughs> yeah, literally. <laughs> literally, that's true. <laughs> oh man, <laughs> they're just stitching it together. <laughs> I had no idea. I do kind of wonder if it's. You know, and if it is like really like a biological thing, like if if it's the same skill set that allows me to find stuff in the fridge that no man can find. <laughs> <laughs> that was sorry, guys, if that was a little sexist. No, I, 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 yeah, I, before... I feel like a piece of meat now <laughs> <laughs> that you can't find. <laughs> Honey, where's the buffalo jerky? Where's the meat? I think I think I'm looking right at it, but. <laughs> I love just too how just blatantly unmotivated this light lighting is in the stagecoach. It's in the stagecoach too. Mm-hmm. I love that. Yeah, I used to. I yeah, I'm a big fan of natural lighting, but yeah. um, I know you're a big verite guy. Yeah, I am, but I I don't know. It doesn't bother me so much in, in these. It, it's it's just done so well. Yeah. There's like a heightened, there's like a heightened naturalism to what he does. That, yeah. Um, I, I think that it that it's okay. I mean, what would you call this? It's almost like a stylized naturalism that that he does that Tarantino kind of does perfectly. Mm. It just looks like there's a skylight everywhere that yeah. people <laughs> are. Mm-hmm. And it's funny because I saw this movie twice and I never thought about it. No. Mm-hmm. Well, that's good. Yeah. But if, he, if it didn't pull you out the film, then it's fine. It well, they, yeah, it's it just it fucking looks cool. Yeah, <laughs> like, like when yeah. when Kurt Russell like leans in front and he gets this halo around his entire fur hat. That just <laughs> that just looks cool. I mean, I think maybe he's got a lot he's riding on with you know, you know, going in that you're you're basically just wondering, okay, when's shit gonna go wrong and how's it gonna go wrong. And who's lying? And there's all of this just sort of anticipation. So I think maybe when 
people's heads are directed in that way, there's a lot more room to play with kind of stylizing things mm-hmm. and you mm-hmm. generate interest that way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. Nice. I'm a, I'm a big fan, you know. I mean, like, I realize that one of the dangers of getting super cinematic with your, your film look is that it can, it can become dated, you know. Um, I don't think it has for John Carpenter. I think his use of, of widescreen and lens flare is, is timeless, but I will also admit that J.J. Abrams has ruined lens flare for the next 10 years. Mm, yeah. Yeah. But it's still fucking cool. I'm sorry. I can't get, I can't get rid of that mindset. Yeah, it definitely hurts when it's, when it's overdone. But Tarantino kind of combines that, you know, because it's cool cinematic stuff with that, like, Jean-Luc Godard making a comment on the cinema, like, like super fake-looking process shots. Um, even, like, cutting back again to a previous scene that'll have slightly different dialogue and things that seem like continuity errors but are too obvious that, you know, they have to be deliberate. That shot is so John Ford. It's beautiful. <laughs> and this here is one of the unused thing pieces. Another thing I love in all his films is the, um, you know, getting back to you talking about the colors, you know, just the richness of colors, but also the, um, the, the, the deepness of his blacks. It's yeah. really hard to get blacks that, that black, that dark and rich. And it was, um, so I went back and looked at his first couple films he used when he shot Reservoir Dogs, they did it um, with uh, Eastman EXR 50 D film, which is, so his DP talked to him in using a 50 speed film, which is essentially like for daylight, what, what you would shoot outside with. So they had to like flood, just flood everything with light. So they said that um, in Reservoir Dogs, that warehouse was just baking. Hmm. Mm. They, were, they were shooting all that but it really got on those really rich colors and then um, did it again with Pulp Fiction that's why everything's so rich uh. in Pulp Fiction and then here of course this is just I mean it's something this, else man this film stock oh. is just amazing so this is a true I guess it's a true 65 millimeter well, and then the other the other 5 millimeter is, is for sound is that right that's how I was reading it I'll take your word for so, that. I think so. It's seventy. It's seventy, but five five millimeters is for the for the music tracks. Okay. So is this still part of the the thing? Yeah. Musical. Uh huh. This so, so this great. feels very much like the thing. <laughs> this scene right yeah. here. Yeah, it does. Dingleberries blowing in the wind. I cut them loose up at the land by a shack. What? It's a line from the thing. Sorry. Oh, thanks. I love I love how he cuts. It's great. He does that so often how he cuts the sound. Cuts the soundtrack.
So I guess this. So Tim Ross' character here is real. His real name is revealed to be English Pete Hickox. Yeah. So he would be an ancestor to um, an inglorious bastard. There was a Lieutenant Archie Hickox, the, oh, the, nice. the Michael Fassbender <laughs> character. Okay. So this is his relative. Oh, so I guess it's his great grandfather. He's supposed to be his great grandfather. Awesome. And it's so it's so interesting how he like pulls these pulls names and themes and actors and just how he incorporates them into all his different films. I, I think is interesting. Marquise Warren is kind of similar to Marcellus Wallace, but no cigar. Yeah, it's like I think uh, the theory is, is Tarantino has has two movie universes, right? There's like the one of the the real world characters, and then the one of the movies that they go to see, which is where like Dustal Dawn and Kill Bill take place. So would this one be in the real world? Totally. This shot reminds me a little bit of Evil Dead. Oh, yeah, I could see that. And there's that little sort of windy sound. Totally, yeah, yeah. There's a little misdirection, too, because it kind of gives you the impression that someone's watching him from the roof, mm-hmm. but they're watching from under the floor. And the Hellraiser puzzle box apparently got solved earlier. There's these chains hanging in the background. <laughs> <laughs> The uh, the whole trapdoor basement thing reminds me a lot of Evil Dead as well. Oh, for sure. Oh yeah. Well, I was just I just rewatched uh, Kill Bill and that scene of her coming out of the the grave <laughs> with oh. her hand. It's, yeah, it's so awesome. good. What about Shoshana and Inglorious Bastards? It all started underground for her. That's right. That's right. Hmm. Yeah, I know it's reversed too because this time the. The assassin is under the floor. Mm-hmm. Dude. I thought that was a bit of a reach myself, but maybe. <laughs> I don't know. That's what we're here for, man. Okay, I'm reaching. <laughs> Reaching for the stars. And speaking... So I did get... Oh, oh sorry, go ahead. Go ahead, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, I did get the um, the Hateful Eight, the Roadshow uh, program uh, when, I, when I went. So it's going to describe it a little bit. You're just but, gonna gloat and yeah. yeah I just I'm just bragging. It's um just gonna crinkle the it? paper in our ears so we can. <laughs> no, it hear smells it so opening. good. It smells like the movies, man. Oh. <laughs> it's uh it's an eight page, eight page thing. It's about ten by ten inches and um has a lot of great has some beautiful stills from the film. Then working um, on the film has a cast list and it has like oh, a little man. thing explaining wow. what a road show is. It has a fold-out po- poster of uh, Goggins, and uh, yeah, it was just cool. It, it was like a nice little. I mean, I guess we should just talk about the whole roadshow format a little bit, and what what he was trying to do in reviving that. I thought was pretty was pretty neat. You guys there? 
for sure. Yeah. yeah. Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's Michael Madsen's on screen. I can't really pay attention. Sorry. I was <laughs> I was paying full attention. I just didn't. Yeah, actually, have anything to add. But yeah, curious as to <laughs> what a cool. road show is. Well, what would what would happen is um, when they started shooting movies like this, um, the whole theater system was a lot different. So there weren't theaters that had capabilities to play back multi-track mm-hmm. audio and and things like that so um well i think um oklahoma was the first 70 millimeter film <gasps> and starting with that they would do two releases they would do um just sort of your standard you know movie release but then they would do what they called a roadshow release and they would get make sure the theaters were set up um and and actually the the six-track audio then, I just lately was learning, it was actually five speakers across the front and one surround channel. Okay. Um, oh. So they'd get this amazing spread of sound across the front, which apparently, especially for orchestral music, is really impressive. Um, mm-hmm. So they would get these theaters set up specially. You'd buy advanced tickets. It was like going to a Broadway show or something okay. like that. It was sort of treated that way. You know, it, it cost more. Um, but yeah, movies like West Side Story and Sound of Music were all released that oh. way. And, and especially, I mean, I saw West Side Story not that long ago in 70 with the original six track audio restored mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. it was absolutely astonishing oh. i was so not prepared for it to sound like it did it was amazing and this was 1961 um and then after that you know sound and movies really <laughs> um kind of went backwards for a little while until star wars and then that started the the path back into getting theaters spiffed out and multi-track that audio and things like immersive that immersive sound that yeah. just takes you into it yeah, well, it's really, it's really a. Um, it was an idea to get people. I don't know, just just you know, kind of upgrade the theater experience. I, I just, I've just seen footage of you know, people showing up in their evening gowns, you know, to these roadshow events. Like it was treated like, um, you know, almost like a theater mm. experience. And the one thing I really like about it is the the intermission. You know, for the longer films, there's the, the intermission in the the middle. Oh, you yeah. Kind of take a break. I think it was Hitchcock that famously said that a, a film's running time should be his own. It should be limited to the um, endurance of the human bladder. <laughs> <laughs> a man after my own heart. Yeah. <laughs> of course, that means it's going to be about twenty minutes. For yeah. Me. yeah. <laughs> Especially if I've been drinking. All I get to watch is Bob's Burgers from now on. Really. <laughs> Super jail. I'm okay with that. <laughs> Yeah, that's a beautiful thing, man. I, uh, I mean, you can't. I can't really even claim grumpy old man status because I'm like sentimental for an era that I never got to witness. Mm. But a time when when movie when cinema was taken that seriously, mm-hmm. oh, just gives me such wood. Yeah. <laughs> well, the level of craft again. I mean, going back to West Side Story, um, I don't know how many of us have seen it. Um, I had never seen it properly, um, and it's mind blowing. Yeah. Um, just this thing that was so big yet moved so quickly um, and and the sound that they achieved and, and all of these things. Where did you see it? At the Hollywood. Oh, my God. I wish I had I've gone. O- I've only seen uh, 2001 and I think Lawrence of Arabia. Oh, my God. 70, which was, which was mind-blowing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they really are. 
Didn't you and Davis go see it in 70, um, 2001? Not is? in 70. Um, oh. We saw it the first time around. I think it was just in 35. Yeah. And we both got very stoned and fell asleep. <laughs> <laughs> you ate those cookies. You ate those uh, damn cookies. Wah, wah. <clears throat> it sounded great, though. <laughs> Couldn't keep your eyes open, but... I mean, I didn't have like the like, I didn't have like the thing in my head like wake up for the Stargate sequence, mm, wake up for mm. the story. Oh, here it is, here it is. Mm. Yeah. That was my alarm clock. Was nice the, job. Thank you. Semi-conscious mind. Good job. kind of back on the subject of uh femininity also was like this is almost a landscape where uh femininity is a, is an unaffordable luxury yeah you know the two really girly girls get killed before the movie even starts mm-hmm. much like the thing yeah yeah and um like rare exports that sort of winter dead mm-hmm. it's all very symbolic <laughs> <clears throat> um so since you brought up femininity again i'm gonna just tell you i read a i did like you know some half-assed research of my own today and read an article mm-hmm. online um on the bust website written by uh, i didn't save it okay i'll have to not credit the person who said it but you can look it up bust feminism tarantino anyway um it's noted that there is this woman alone in the middle of a blizzard with eight men and not once is having sex with her or raping her touched upon which is really pretty cool yeah (laughs) and um and then i also read in that same article that the only Tarantino film in which uh, woman rape is mentioned at all. Not man rape. Not, which, there's plenty of man rape. Plenty of man rape. Tons of man rape. But woman rape <laughs> is Kill Bill 2 with the whole thing with the... Or was it, was it two or one? It was it one. Was one with, oh, it was with one. The, uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, when she was in the hospital. With yeah, Buck. the coma yeah. thing. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and that's pretty impressive, too. Yeah considering how much rape there is in his films and how violent, <laughs> you know, it just, he, he thinks about this shit. Yeah, for sure. No, it's interesting. I mean, like he doesn't really seem very interested in sex, uh, in cinema, no. in his own movies. Like there's no, one yeah. very unerotic sex scene in Jackie Brown. Oh God. And <laughs> I think that's about <sighs> it. Unless, unless you can't put fetishism, which maybe you do. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he's. It's definitely not non-erotic. His his. I mean, he has never really Brown thought about it or, before. But like, yeah, there's Jackie Brown. Oh no, yeah. this Jackie Brown sex scene is totally not okay, erotic yeah. at all. At all. I just mean, like, okay, like Jackie well, Brown is very romantic. There's tension. And there is tension. That's pretty. Um, not not in that sex but it's scene. Never but it's never consummated. Between Jackie Brown and and um. What's his face? Max Cherry. Thank you. Um, yeah, you know, and there's feet, you know, in so many Tarantino <laughs> films, and 
Is there any feet in this one? I don't think we get uh, so. horse, horse hooves earlier. They were in slow motion. Yeah, the thing, I, li- I like Jackie Brown, though, that that relationship is so, feels so adult to me. Hmm. I mean, that's something I really liked about Jackie Brown was just how... Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Adult the whole thing felt. And yeah. I think it was really... I think a big thing he was stretching for was... Um, I don't know. Yeah, just a maturity in his filmmaking. Mm-hmm. And it felt like he had really shown that he could be super mature. Subtlety. Yeah, yeah. not subtle. that he was lacking subtlety in any way before, because he always has a nice balance. But Jackie Brown was especially subtle. <clears throat> and uh, back when we were first talking about doing this particular commentary, I remember Dan, you and I were were talking about uh, Tarantino's use of violence, and mm-hmm. you not you not being sure at the time how you felt about it. Um, and it kind of made me go back and think about it too. And like what I thought his crime movies were about, if they were about anything. And what I came up with was, I, I think they can be summed up, uh, by the, uh, the conversation that pumpkin and honey bunny have at the beginning of Pulp Fiction. Uh, basically like, like, so what are we going to do then? Day jobs? Not in this <laughs> life. Huh. You know, so it's, yeah. so it's about like in the same way that breaking bad is kind of about how shitty the American insurance system is without ever talking about it. Like Pulp Fiction is about, or the crime movies in general. Those first three films are about the existential drudgery of having a day job yeah. and the lengths that some people will go to to avoid it. Yeah, like yeah and he's, he's talked about that in interviews. He said that you know if he if he didn't become a filmmaker, he probably would have been a became a crook. <laughs> just say he couldn't, and he does deal with that a lot. Just the drudgery mm. and sadness of people. Um, getting getting stuck in these jobs these service jobs even though he loved i mean he loved video archive but um yeah he knows what service industry is and definitely appreciates it appreciate appreciates what it means yeah the violence thing yeah i guess we can get into that a little bit yeah i definitely um i mean it's hard to talk talk about it without talking about the violence thing and i went and found a couple interviews of him talking about it uh, early, early in his career, like I think he stopped talking about it once he started getting hammered on it so much. But um, yeah, I think I had. It's been it's been an interesting journey for me. Like this is um, this has been a fun project because I really had to go back and reassess him as an artist and and his work. And I am, um, yeah, I've, re- I've really come around. I was kind of on the fence, um, to be honest, with him. And I felt like mm. a lot of you guys there. Yeah. yeah. Yo, yeah. We're oh, listening sorry. To you. sorry, the mic was making a weird sound. Um, I'm getting a weird sound on my headphones. Okay, it stopped. Yeah, I, I was, um, yeah, I, I was just on the fence. I felt like, um, I think originally I felt like a lot of it was gratuitous. I think there was like a, you know, the the pop sensibilities in his, the pop culture sensibilities in his films. I think rubbed me the wrong way you know, initially. And I think I push back on anything that's, that kind of breaks in popular culture mm-hmm. anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I'm kind of bad, bad with that. Like kind of judging, just assuming that if everybody likes it, it's probably not, mm-hmm. you know, good. I, sure, I think sure. I've been a little snotty like that in the past, but, but um, I don't know. I've, I've really come around like rewatching his, 
rewatching this stuff, I went back and watched uh, Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction and was just really impressed with how, how well it holds up, you know, first of all. And you know, I remember really enjoying it when I first saw it, but um, it's just it's just masterfully made, you know, both, both those films and all his films, really. Yeah, uh, Pulp Fiction the, was one of those movies that uh, Roger Ebert had the, the week-long master class on where they, like, analyzed every shot. Oh, my God. <laughs> in, in Pulp Fiction? Yeah. Yeah, it's it's amazing, and even even Reservoir Dogs, you know, it's just a little kind of um, you know, little chamber piece, a little chamber piece in a lot of ways, and mm-hmm. and just the the, I think he spent, ah, I'm trying to remember how many shooting days he had on it. I think it was five. Was it five weeks? Or maybe even six weeks. I mean, it was crazy, and it had two weeks of rehearsals, and then I think five weeks of shooting. Like everything was so meticulous. Hmm meticulously thought out but um yeah getting back to the violence i I don't want to hog up the commentary here anybody else it's a long movie don't worry about it (laughs) (laughs) seriously um yeah i just feel i I found a cool cool quote like one of the early interviews uh one of the uh uh, one of the the early critics of him was was, uh there was a cool quote that he had his name was uh, stanley kaufman and he said, if the film isn't intri- intrinsically engaging, then the violence feels egregious, mm. egregious, possibly offensive. If the film engages, the violence is exciting. We all lie about the subject as much as pornography. If a violent picture is entertaining or better, we tiss, tiss, but later on, but we enjoy it while it is on. Mm-hmm. And I think that, I, I think that, I think that his, um, I don't know, the violence in his films, I think has been criticized because it's so effective. Like I don't, in rewatching <laughs> a lot of this stuff, I, I was surprised like how much actually happens off screen. Yeah, you know, with, yeah. with the, yeah. the 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 um, torture scene in, in Reservoir Dogs, and um, got a lot of the stuff in Kill Bill, actually. Mm-hmm. The rape in Pulp Fiction, mm-hmm. for the most part. Yep. Yeah, d- tons of it happens off screen, and even even if it does happen on screen, it doesn't. There's no lingering over like a corpse for, like sensationalism. Mm-mm. You know, there's no like. I don't know. I mean, it's it's super powerful. I mean, the way that he uses violence is super powerful, but I don't feel like it's... I. So it's fun. Like, his violence is really fun. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. um, you know, it, it kind of, for me, just makes me think about all the horror geeks I know who mm-hmm. have spent most of their lives <laughs> watching just so much violence and are some of the gentlest people <laughs> that I know and I kind of you know think that there's something to um, working through those urges through good entertainment you know good film um, rather than acting those impulses out in real life I think there's something to that yeah. Yeah. I have to say that like probably drums and and horror movies are the the two maybe the only two areas in my life where I would consider myself virile. <laughs> what, what was the first thing? You I said? can think of a third. Drumming. Okay, sure. Same. Yeah. No, drumming, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but uh yeah, I know it's interesting. I do I I consider myself a pretty gentle pacifist person, but I really I love me watching some fucking horror movies. Mm-hmm. People getting cut in half with chainsaws. 
Can't explain it. Well, I don't particularly love everybody. <laughs> so sometimes it's nice to transfer that yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, emotion to just be like, yeah, yeah. There's a psychological term for it, and it's not sublimation. But I can't think of what it is. <laughs> I want to say it's sublimation, but I know it isn't sublimation. There's something, too, like about uh, uh, in, in Dance Macabre, which is like Stephen King's kind of uh, take on the horror genre altogether, and like he talks about uh, viewing a horrific image and and feeling repulsion at it and reaffirming our own humanity because of that. It's like we're reminding ourselves that we still have that kind mm-hmm. of empathy if we can be shocked or disgusted by something. Yeah, you know, and even like in a more fun kind of yeah, like, like taking <laughs> it to taking it to like the other like maybe kind of bloodlusty extreme, like Inglorious Bastards. We just rewatched, you know, like the the vicarious thrill that your brain gets of seeing Hitler getting liquefied by <laughs> oh, machine man. guns. Oh, yeah. You know, that's also <laughs> so like good. a little ways that like we, we check in with ourselves and like, yep, yeah, nope, still hate Hitler. Okay, good. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but Tarantino definitely talks about the, you know, in the early interviews, just of the, you know, the streak that runs through um, everyone. They just, that you know, that part of this, that the darker side of this. It's there and tapping into that. And I, he, in a lot of those early interviews, he just always came back to the idea of, um, you know, how he's, um, how he's uh, criticized for a lot of this stuff. And, and he kind of, you know, it feels like critics are trying to hem him in. And he always gets, he always comes back to um, writers of novels or, you know, musicians or painters or any other art form where they're, you're not hemmed in by um by critics and you're allowed to explore these themes freely and i think that he he's really trying to you know kind of explore the parameters of human suffering and um it, there's another thing that struck me is just how existential you know a lot, a lot of these themes are in his deeply existential a lot of these themes are in his films and i think he, he really pushes back um really gets angry that he can't show violence and what it means to be alive and and to die in this world, you know, in in real ways, without without being criticized for it. Well, I wonder if the people that are criticizing it mainly are people that are like uncomfortable with feeling things. <laughs> so it's like, yeah, sometimes I yeah, kind of do want to kill people, and I enjoy watching it happen. Mm-hmm. Instead of just like, oh no, 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 I, I would never do that. I would never. No, oh no, no, I shouldn't watch it. Unless nobody, it was nobody in should the talk Lord's about name it. Anyway. Uh, yeah. <laughs> But but it's also a matter of, of taste, and he he mentions that a couple times too. Just that it's um, you know, it's like some people don't like um, dancing in films, or some people don't like you know musicals, or like there's just aspects, yeah, yeah, that maybe certain people aren't into in films, and if they're not, then that's fine. They don't have to they don't have to watch. But the people that can, that can handle, it, like you said, the people that aren't afraid to kind of explore some of these darker darker themes. Um, I mean, here it here it is in pretty, in pretty honest ways. Well, like I mean, it's stagey. It's stagey as this stuff is, it's like there's an honesty to his violence. I think that is that is. Yeah, I would agree with that. And and he's one of the good. one of the few and one of the best uh, directors I've seen who can who can really inject moments of humor into horrible situations without uh, taking the the fangs out of the horror of it, you know, or or cheapening it or insulting it. If that makes any sense, like the uh, yeah. like when they're the the adrenaline shot in Pulp Fiction is 
I think the primary example of that. I just could not believe how horrified I was sitting in the theater. And then like this moment of genuine laughter, which is kind of a relief and kind of even worse <laughs> because it's mixed in with the, I guess the, the spice of the horror. Yeah. Does that make any sense? Yeah. Yeah. Well, there, there's an honesty to that scene. Yeah. You know, of just how, how life works. Like life isn't, you know, the violent and crazy things that happen in life just, um, and, and that, that, that seems beautifully edited as well. You know, it's, it captures that surprise of that of that moment in a way that like scares us but it, it you know excites us too to see to see it mm-hmm. I was, so would you think uh uh shit Django a chain would be in which world is that in for Tarantino that real world or it's it's like the the violence in that is so cartoony to me right. that I would put it in the the B universe. Because I was thinking it's like generally when I think about the most violent things in a Tarantino movie, it's never it doesn't ever feel gratuitous. And then I was like, oh well, other than the like you know eight minute long scene where she was killing the crazy eighties with swords, <laughs> which frankly, yeah, that's I a wish different was in color. But like uh, and then but like you know also with uh, Django. Mm-hmm. It just looks like everybody got hit with a water balloon every time they got shot. It was, it was a very lone wolf and cub blood yeah. geysery kind of yeah. effect to that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, definitely. Yeah. I, yeah. I think that's a different. Yeah. I think we'd be talking about something else with, with that. Like I just rewatched, um, not rewatched. I just saw for the first time, uh, Lady Snowblood. Yeah. Which is a big influence on he, Kill Bill, of course. Yeah. Which he heavily based, yeah, Kill Bill on. And it's. Um, yeah, just just getting into that, um, yeah, the whole the whole genre, you know, the the Wexia, um, um, uh, what am I trying to say? Yeah, just super genre based. You know, I I think he was scratching some itches that he that he had of just things that he loved to see on film with that, and there and he does, and he goes full cartoony. You know, there's that um, there's the uh, anime sequences and. Kill Bill too. Pai Mei balancing on the uh, tip of her sword. Oh yeah, yeah. The anime scenes are amazing. Kind of like the, even that kind of felt like a, a bit of a fuck you to natural born killers. Like here's how you do that. <laughs> and yeah, one of the things that. Uh, Tarantino is largely responsible for, for better and for worse, I guess, is uh, legitimizing uh, exploitation genres and the tropes of exploitation. Is this yellow neckerchief a uh, a clue? <laughs> no, I don't think so. Not, not in the Reservoir Dogs way, anyway. Because that was all about one character being... Not who they said they were. Yeah. Most most of the characters in this are not who they say they are. So the exterior was Colorado. Where, where was the... Um, and then they built the studio for this interior stuff. What Do you know where the studio was? I do not know. I do know they kept the temperature at 30 degrees in the studio so that you could still see 
you know, so it's still cold and you see the breath and mm, the steam awesome. off the coffee and all that. God, I would hate being an actor. 30 degrees. Fuck that. <laughs> For like hours and hours and hours. No. Well, but what would you rather it be like? Have it be like 70 in the studio and you have to wear furs all day long? Uh, furs yeah, and leathers? Or... That would suck. Just like that. That's exactly what so they bad. had to do in the thing. Yeah, that's yeah. a good point. Yeah. Oh, okay. like, fuck, I have to do this again? <laughs> Poor guy. Everybody got sick on the thing because they were constantly going back and forth between the refrigerated set and like the summer Universal Studios. Oh. oh. Another the th- all of the outdoor bits from the time the blizzard starts really feel like the thing. Yeah. Those lines especially. Yeah. yeah. But it is also very <laughs> thing-ish in that you know there's kind of this sense of you know who's got the monster in them yeah in it, yeah know? yeah for sure yeah he talked about how in um I mean, he was talking about then reservoir dogs i can't remember if he, i can't remember if the interview was talking about that or if it was talking about this one but he was talking about in in reservoir dogs how how he wanted to create he wanted that tension to be so intense at the end that it bounces off the three walls and then eventually has to bounce through the fourth wall to the viewer. So, so you're, so you're that environment, you know, it's just that claustrophobic environment that just gets more and more tense. And there's actually at least one moment, probably more than one, um, that really do feel like visual echoes of the thing. One coming up later when this shit hits the fan, that's very similar to the blood test. And going ahead and getting uh, getting the Jung stuff out of the way uh, at this point, um, wanted to go back and try to find anything Jungian in any of Tarantino's movies. Open that door to the subconscious, Willie. <laughs> <laughs> the, the only thing I could really find was Pulp Fiction and maybe being about the process of, uh, of mystical alchemy. Um, Jung was very, very into uh, alchemy as a concept and humanist pro-mysticism and believed that you could uh, use the... I guess the mystic rituals of alchemy um, in order to go through the psychological process and become a better human being and uh, turn the soul into gold. And of course there's like uh, the most popular fan theory going around about Pulp Fiction and what was in the briefcase was that it was Marcellus Wallace's soul having been stolen by agents of Satan and uh, Jules and Vincent go to retrieve it from the agents. Uh, The briefcase of course is 666. and that's why the uh, the bullets don't hit them. It really was divine intervention because the most noble thing that you can do is uh, save another human being's soul. Um, so Jules hears the hears the call, sees the signs, leaves the life, and survives. Uh, Vincent is not so lucky. He doesn't believe. Um, so yeah, and of course the devil has to get in one last sting at Marcellus. Um, with a little anal rape, but um, <laughs> but yeah, the idea that uh, a soul—I guess the uh, yeah—a corrupt soul becoming redeemed, turning its basis metal into gold—that's definitely present in Pulp Fiction, and it's the only film that I could really find anything vaguely Jungian in. This could be about uh, 
the complete lack of femininity and if you want to look at like bodies of water as being feminine symbols you know snow frozen wilderness it is a barren womb <laughs> and even the one the one lady in the movie is is a dude basically she's pure animus that's all so, i got thank you for listening yeah no no so if you if you feel <laughs> so if his films aren't coming out of that um you know, and then creatively as an artist, if his if his art's not coming out of that Jungian world, and where, where do you think a lot of it's coming from? That's a good question. Not sure I have an answer yet. Outer space. <laughs> <laughs> Any thoughts on the matter, Dan? No, it's just. You know, he's just interesting to me as as an artist in general, just with. Um, I guess how I used to describe his work is kind of a collage art. Mm-hmm. You know how he's kind of how he's kind of absorbed all these um, just the language of film, and then kind of does a pastiche. It, it kind of filters it through his his uh, consciousness and things that he loves and focuses on, and then kind of reassembles everything. But um, so so I guess I used to ask myself that, like if you know, if you consider. Even when I was on the fence with him, I, was, I would just be like, if you consider him, a, um, if you consider a collage artist, like a good artist, you know, I mean, still art, is that is that a true art form? Yes. And, um, if you can, yeah. I it's think definitely it is. a yeah, true art sure. form. Yeah, I think it, it is. It is. Mm-hmm. it is definitely possible to see all those little images kind of clipped and filtered through somebody else's vision and to see their vision, for sure. But there's a, a, there's a freedom... There's a freedom in that, and I think his filmmaking and like he's, um, you know, bringing up Godard, which is he's definitely mentioned as one of his cinematic heroes. Something Godard did was um, the same thing. You know, he was uh, started off as a critic and just knew knew the history of film inside and out, and wasn't afraid to kind of smash the forms and and reassemble them. So I mean, there's a freedom as you know, freedom as an artist. I think it's kind of like the old. You know, artists even today that like learn the classical, like say a painter, you know, learns how to paint classically and learns all the forms classically and then can kind of develop, then develops their own style. So I feel like, I don't know, I feel like he, he's really done that. And Godard did that. And I feel like um, Tarantino has done that where he's really absorbed the language of film and, and you know, can, can use it in interesting ways and reassemble it. And it's not inhibited by it. I think that's why he gets so angry with the, the violence things and i think criticism in general you know it's just that he's uh, likes to feel free as an artist of course as a true artist you know and there's it's i think his work shows like how rare i mean they're how rare um you know the i don't know how, how you guys feel about the auteur theory i have different feelings about it but i mean if you are going to call a director an auteur i think he's definitely one, one that could be considered tour absolutely one of the one of the few yeah personally those those do seem to be my favorites my favorite filmmakers are generally auteurs <laughs> yeah certainly i mean they have their they have their own voices and with Terrence, you know, you know, having you... your own voice means that, that you yeah that you're creating something new for sure and i think he definitely does you know as as much as he's borrowing uh and stealing from other sources i think his uh the intellectual arrangement of those ideas and images and the emotions that are underneath them, you know, they're all there and his ability to tell his own stories with those tools is there. And that's pretty awesome. Well, and it, I mean, we're at a point in entertainment where 
we're just remaking shit. <laughs> There's like how many Spider Mans are there that are the same oh, movie Christ. that have been made in the last ten years? Yeah, oh, but that, those are so yeah. cynical. Yeah. yeah, but I was like, at least it's, these are things that he saw and he loved and he inspired him and he was like how can i use this and make my own beautiful thing mm-hmm. yeah, yeah without yep, without yep. irony i think that's the key yeah yeah yeah, yeah. That none of this mm-hmm. none of anything nothing he does is ironic Mm-mm. he does it out of pure love love of it and passion for it you know and again like uh you were talking about not wanting to be reined in and maybe use, using violence more gratuitously because he was criticized for it again i think if he has any kind of a mission statement, I think some of it is to bring legitimacy to a lot of these exploitation tropes and that the, one of the biggest of which is, is using violence to tell a story. You know, I mean, sex and violence, as far as I'm concerned, are pretty much the most important subjects on the mind of every human being alive right now. And since the beginning of people, and it's very interesting that there's such hot buttons in cinema. Yeah, definitely. And I've, I've heard that before. Like if you're not, you know, if you're not making art about um, sex or death, you're wasting your time. <laughs> and sex is really a, about death. Well, death, too, so it's I like, think of death as a whole other thing than violence. I mean, violence can be involved in death, but death is, um, I don't know. I think it gets back to the themes of why, you know, why, why we're alive, you know, just the, I think talking about death in an existential sense. Sure. Yeah. 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 I, yeah. I, I'm just thinking. I'm just um, kind of going off what you guys are talking about and adding my own thing, which is that maybe it's sex, death, and violence because violence doesn't violence can lead to death, but it's it's more about fight, flight, or or freeze kind of um, how someone reacts when. Well, there can be violence involved in, in sex danger. too. So it's yeah, that's there, true. Yeah, I mean, like yeah. there's there's violence in saying yeah. nigger. You know, there's definitely, mm. definitely. You didn't even say the n word. Sorry, you yeah. saucy. <laughs> so I saw that Louis C.K. monologue, and I can't go back to saying n word now. <laughs> <laughs> Willie, I gotta um, I gotta just sort of share a thought about what you're saying about the whole lack of anima in this. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, there is this sort of, you know, barren, desolate, sort of symbolic, you know, the no women thing. Mm-hmm. Sorry. It's, <laughs> I'm, tr- I'm stumbling through my words here because I'm a little <laughs> sleepy. But um, Time to crack that diet cake. I know, right? I already did. <laughs> oh, I already had shit. the diet cake and it didn't help. Well, it helped for five minutes. But anyway, um, I think that she is actually feminine. I think that we're just not used to seeing femininity portrayed that way in film and in, yeah. in the, and it isn't, she's not, um, she's female, you know, but it's not like she's female in contrast to the masculinity of all of the other characters in the film. She's not portrayed as a weaker sex. No, or, or really being that different. Right. From the other characters and her motivations, you know, which I think is cool. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You know, again, 
It kind of reminds me that I haven't seen the new Ghostbusters, but somebody mentioned they saw it, and there was just a part where they're all all the girls are sitting around eating pizza. Mm. There's piles of pizza, mm-hmm. and there's mm. not one fat pizza. joke thrown out there. Oh my god! <laughs> I was like, that's the subtlety oh that that people want. Yeah, I was like, just don't be a dick about. No. Yeah. Well, you know, it's just like. Women in film are very rarely portrayed as just people, you know. Yeah. <laughs> like, I mean, it's I, I, even even in films where you know women are portrayed as being very human. You know, there's this sort of, you know, they're not farting, they're not eating, they're not, you know, um, doing things actively and not caring how they look while they're doing them. You know, right. there's just not enough of that, and it's just cool. We need more, more farting more women in cinema. Going <laughs> <laughs> back to the interiors, I poked around a little bit, and it looks like they built the interiors on the ranch where they shot it. Oh, wow. That's cool. I know they should. I, I looked it up too, and I know that they shot. Um, they did a lot of studio work in in LA too at Red Studios. It said. Oh okay. So I, I think this is all a set here. Oh, this is some fucked up shit. It's about to happen right now. Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. Silent Night. I'm so sick of that song. <laughs> <laughs> Willie's really triggered by the Silent Night. What comes next is meh, but the Christmas song. <laughs> so I thought was um, I read something interesting that there was. The, the initial inception for this was after he did Django Unchained, he had started a novel. Tarantino had started a novel called uh, Django and White Hell. <laughs> but then he abandoned the whole project because he thought the uh, it just wouldn't work to have a, a that character, you know, move, move into this world. That you'd be there'd be expectations that he wouldn't be killed and okay. There'd be too much backstory, you know, for that character to carry it into this. <laughs> yeah, having him be a little more mysterious kind of makes you wonder if this story is even true. Yeah, for sure. Hmm. <clears throat> I don't believe it's true because there's no way anybody's dick would be this swinging <laughs> in this climate. <laughs> 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 yeah. it'd, be like a, it'd be like a little pencil eraser it must be like knee length normally <laughs> it's a prosthetic like A&D yeah. <laughs> it's a fucking jump rope when it's 72 degrees outside <laughs> it's the first non-porno movie where they used a fluffer <laughs> <laughs> They couldn't do a fluffer oh, though, because there'd be more bummer. more uh, footprints. Oh, that's true. <laughs> He's gonna have to fluff himself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it's interesting. You guys were saying he doesn't 
Um, there's not a lot of sex in, in his films, but is, I think he's slated to do. Isn't he redoing uh, Faster Pussycat? Mm. Is he? I did not know that. Well, you know, I, let me let me double check on that. How about Death Proof? I mean, there's no actual mm-hmm. sex, but there's some real sexy. There's mm-hmm. a lap dance, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And, in, in one and of the versions, the girls are are all talking about sex a lot. Yeah, you know, and oh, you know, talking about sex and making out and what? S- speaking of Death Proof, no, thank yes. you. That there was some more uh, Jungian uh, some nuggets that I found, but, but I would say that like um, the girls in Death Proof, there's there's something that they like they're so. They seem to me very much like Tarantino's fantasy version of what strong, sassy women talk about when they're alone. You know, in the same way that they're like his fantasy girls, in the same way that uh, Tura Satana is one of Russ Meyer's fantasy girls. Mm. You know, it is kind of his Russ Meyer fantasy. And I would go so far as to say that those girls are a manifestation of Tarantino's anima. Okay. You think? Sure, why not? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'll go with that. You know, I'm 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 really into the you know, I like the Jungian stuff. Um I'm a huge fan, but I, I always it there's always kind of this like um devil's advocate in me too, or maybe that's not the word for it, but kind of different viewpoint. Which is that, you know, men and women are not so different. We're not that <laughs> polarized, you know? I mean, anima and animus, it's this wonderful conceptual stuff. It's, a, it's, an, it's an old stuff, model that maybe we're evolving dingus. away from. Half a chromosome. Half yeah. a chromosome is our only difference. So, I mean, yeah. you know. Yeah. Except for everything that's been built around. Well, well maybe I, I, think that's that. a, I think that's a, I don't know, maybe a... <laughs> Dingus. A dangerous, not dangerous, but a... Dingus. <laughs> I guess, I mean, what does LSD actually do in your body? How much, what's actually what? happening there? How much is it actually? Oh. Yet, it turns mm. the entire universe upside down on you. Yeah. So saying it's only half a chromosome, that doesn't really mean anything to uh, me. Okay, all right, yeah, good point. Good point. I mean, you might be able to boil yeah. anima and animus down to like like testosterone and estrogen. Sure. Yeah. Well, you know, and also anima and animus, I mean, might have to do with everything we've built around male and, and, and female identity. And, that and, too, that too. You know, what our culture projects onto gender, you know. But that's a good point, Ron. Yeah. I still don't think we're all that different. Well, what do you think it would be if, like, uh-huh. a female director, a female film writer, like if uh, all the girls in Death Proof are uh-huh. Tarantino's... Or dudes. Yeah, like oh. if she if yeah. she wrote, wrote a a movie that was mm-hmm. like sort of a what would she a woman would do. write those women the same way maybe or, or if she was like if she was writing all dudes I don't mean I don't know mm. would they be her fantasy that's a good question mm-hmm. I don't know. yeah no, that's interesting there's almost mm-hmm. like a it feels to me like there's almost an arrested development with him and his view of women huh. how so you know I don't know I just feel like he has just kind of going back to um I love True Romance and the whole. I, I went back and wa- rewatched that and just absolutely loved it as a as a fairy tale. Mm-hmm. And you know he he had wrote that when he was a um, a clerk at the store, and that relationship with Alabama and everything about it is kind of almost what a teenage boy would think a perfect yeah romance mm-hmm. would be. And, mm-hmm. and there's there's a real beauty to it. But um, even 
you know, I don't know, even with, with the bride and even with the girls in death proof, I, I don't know, I feel like there's, and, you know, I don't, and I don't know what his private life is like, you know, um, <laughs> he, was a, he was a clerk forever and then he became, you know, incredibly famous, you know, so I don't know if, I don't know if there's like a true arc in his development with, what about with Jackie women. Brown? Oh, that's true. No. You, yeah. you just destroyed my argument because that's a well, very adult, you know, and he he does a very adult character. All of his female characters have, I mean, well, with the exception of Death, death Proof, but Death Proof is just, I think, kind of designed to have bad dialogue. But they all get good dialogue. You know, they're not just an afterthought. Like, and I and I do appreciate that. Well, and it, I don't know if Jackie. Brown destroys no. the argument because that's an Elmore Leonard novel. So, oh yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's good. Uh, but thank you. Thanks did. for saving me. Yeah, yeah, gotcha. <laughs> he did pick thickens. it and make it yeah, and I, stay true to form in it. Yeah. So. Yeah. Oh, and so um, he is he is um, scheduled to do Faster Pussycat Kill Kill. Huh. And I know that he's mm. he's mentioned in interviews that Russ Myers he, he thinks is one of the best um, mm. director directors who ed- who edits their own work. So I, I know he's a big fan of Russ Meyer, but so that's going to be uh, one he's of in his the last special thanks three. at the end of Death Proof. Huh. A lot of guys are Dario's in there too, Dario Argento. So I'm not sure I understand how his, uh, like how his his stunted attitude towards women is represented. I'm I'm not sure what I'm still not sure what you mean. <laughs> I'm just curious, you know. How his attitude towards women is what? I'm sorry, what was that? Is stunted? Like what? how that shows up and what what that means? Could you say a little more about that? I, yeah, I don't know. I guess, um, well, the, the the last movie that I watched to catch up mm-hmm. on his on his body work was um, Kill Bill. Mm-hmm. And I know it's super, mm-hmm. it's a super stylized film. And I'm just thinking about. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you know the the bride in that in that is, isn't. I mean, she's very much a caricature, you know, of the the Wuxia, um, you know, warrior, you know, getting revenge. Mm-hmm. But um, so that's not a really good example. So let's see that, and I was thinking about Alabama, but that's a fairy tale anyway, so it doesn't really count. Alabama um, from True Romance. Oh, yeah. you know what? I haven't seen that in a while, so I think I have to see that to kind of because I I think. That well, was the example so you used. Off, off of I need his, to see it again. Um, yeah, yeah. So it, I, I mean, uh, Natural Born Killers, I think, is so off of his the original vision. Like, we can't use that as a Mm-mm. a reference point. Mia Wallace from um, Pulp Fiction. Gangs, yeah, gangster really, Mall. Yeah, I really like that character. But, I mean, there isn't... Yeah, there's flirting. You know, there's flirting between some great flirting between those two characters, but you know, it all gets interrupted with her overdose before mm, mm. it's developed too far. Hmm. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, do I you just... mean stunted attitude towards, Oh, I, okay. It's clicking for me now. I'm sorry. You're just talking about his representation of romantic relationships between men and women. Yes. That's exactly it. Uh... Gotcha. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> okay. Did you think I meant small in stature that all his women were, <laughs> uh, no, I'm not. I, I had no idea what you meant, but I get it. <laughs> All right. Yeah, and I don't know if that's right. I guess it's just something I'd want to look oh, at no. more. Oh no, yeah, I've kind of wondered about that too. 
Actually, yeah. But yeah, Jackie. Well, yeah, Brown no, would and be like an he exception. definitely he likes to build romantic tension and not pay it off, mm-hmm. for sure. Mm-hmm. And I don't even know if it's it would yeah I mean like anybody who's listening to this commentary already knows the uh, the horror story behind this poor guitar. Yeah, we're about to get to why I yeah, have a real hard time oh. with Kurt Russell at this point. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. He's this about is a, to be a complete a real, fucking asshole. This is a real mm. 1870s Martin guitar. Oh, oh, right. Okay, yeah. Yeah, go ahead and do that whole anecdote for anybody that doesn't know it. Um, basically, well, I guess the story is that there was a prop guitar that they were going to uh, switch this out with for, for the big scene. And I don't... Yeah, and it, Kurt either didn't know or didn't care that she wasn't using the prop. To me, it's just, it's just mind-boggling that they wouldn't use a prop all the way through and fucking have her play along to a track. Mm. Yeah. Just, I mean, uh, how could you let this thing out of your sight and into a fucking movie set? They won't be doing that anymore. No, they sure won't. Mm. No, but it's very interesting because watch when it happens and um, um, because her reaction is completely yeah. inappropriate to the film. <laughs> And yeah, her part totally. and her character, yeah. and it's just a sudden it's Jennifer Jason of reality. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it's, it's great. It, I, I, I don't know. I, it's like the scene in Alien when nobody knew the alien was going to pop out of the stomach mm-hmm. to get to get the real responses. Well, yeah, yeah. but that was Except to get a response appropriate something. to the plot of the film, yeah. and this is a response yeah. inappropriate to the plot of the mm-hmm. film. She wouldn't have given a flying fuck. Mm-hmm. Unless she had an appreciation for a fine guitar. Eh. <laughs> Even then, nah. She was, it's she, still a she's, Martin, you know. Her own guitar is probably a piece of crap. <laughs> so does anybody know the story about the... Um, I, it just came up a few times. I, I guess I wasn't aware of it when it was happening, that he had started, started this project and then the script was leaked, or... Like the that is what read was leaked. So, um, so what happened exactly with that? He gave it to like three actors, and it got leaked. Uh-huh. And there were fingers pointing to Bruce Dern. I don't know if that was ever verified, mm. but he's one of the three to have gotten it. So he almost shelved it, but uh, there was a table read that went really, really well, and he decided to keep going. I think he rewrote at least the ending. I think. Don't quote me on that, but. This is just like one step below the fucking animal violence and cannibal holocaust. <laughs> mm, mm-hmm. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> she did kind of look upset there. <laughs> I think I think it works okay because her, her back's to the camera for most of that. I mean, you're right. I think it's out of proportion, but <sighs> I think it's it's okay. Kurt Russell's about to uh, pull a Janet Lee here and exit the film way earlier than we thought he would. I was kind of shocked by it, mm-hmm. that he was the first to go. Yeah. Another unused piece from The Thing. This is called Bestiality. Mm. I don't think I could imagine that in The Thing. I wouldn't want it in there. Yeah. Uh-huh. But it sure is good here. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. There's something Tartino's so good at. You know, you're talking about him, you know, losing 
Kurt Russell here so early that is being a huge surprise, but him, um, it's so early in the just, movie. Uh, they, yeah. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I just love, I love his, mis- I love his misdirection, you know, as a filmmaker. And, um, he talks about that, like just how savvy film, film viewers are. And, you know, he loves like throwing a curveball and keeping you on your toes. Like he know he expects people to have the filmic language to expect certain pacing or plot points at a certain times. And I think he really messes with it messes with you as a viewer like in a good way I, to me he's kind of like the anti Spielberg I think Spielberg has no respect for his audience like get, getting anything so he has to spell everything out for him where Tarantino like <laughs> <laughs> expects you to have like a filmic vocabulary and, and yeah, yeah. Along. that makes sense it's just as manipulative, but a lot more clever. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. This is hard to watch coming yeah. in. Mm. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> This also, for some reason, makes me think of Evil Dead. Uh, Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. I couldn't tell you why exactly. Uh (laughs) So, something interesting, technically, too, with in filming this, they, they um. So, you know, they use the lenses that they shot. <laughs> oh, that's why. That's why. Oh, <laughs> that's some really good vomiting. Oh, like, it's yes. coming right out of their mouths. That's, that's fantastic. Oh. So, uh, lenses? Sorry, you were... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Carry. Totally carry. Which is isn't that one of his heroes, Willie? Isn't he like? A, oh, that's his favorite. Yeah, that's his his favorite filmmaker is De Palma. Mm. I remember him talking on uh, the Charlie Rose show about even having some respect for Raising Cain, which is one of the worst fucking movies anyone's ever made. But uh, that it, because it seemed like De Palma was like every second trying to do the opposite of what the audience wanted him to do, not even expected, but you know, which just would like out of a genre piece. And there, there were times when I felt like he was almost doing this, the same thing in death proof, except he actually like had a payoff where Raising Cain did not. Oh, what, what I was saying about the lenses is they're um, so these are the same lenses they shot Ben Hur with on this camera. Nice. Oh, and here comes the blood test scene. This is basically McCready with the blowtorch right now, deciding who he can trust to give the other blowtorch to. What do you mean blowtorch? Flamethrower in the thing. Oh, okay.
Well, you want to describe that scene a little bit more, Willie? Oh, so um, people know what you're talking about. Um, McCready knows that uh, at least one person uh, in his camp isn't who they they appear to be, and uh, basically holds everybody hostage with a, a flamethrower and some dynamite. Uh, gets the idea of of testing everyone's blood, but he needs uh, to figure out who he can trust first, so that he can have someone uh, just as a backup. And uh, that uh, turns out to be Windows in the thing. So this is basically McCready and Windows getting ready to find out who's who. So, so Thanos using these um, with these prime lenses on the Ultra seventy is that he didn't have. This is the first film he didn't have access to to zooming, so he's used that a lot in his. You know, he couldn't zoom, so everything had to be done physically with a camera. That's cool. So I guess at one point they had taken. You know, this is a set, so part of the, you know, one of the walls generally isn't there. And they had used a um, a crane, so they had a camera on a crane. We're doing a lot of the camera moves with a with a crane. Was that because with the lenses he was shooting with, you just don't zoom with that, or? Yeah, yeah, they're prime lenses, which so just means they're they're fixed. It's okay. fixed glass, so you can't zoom. Okay. So I do, I do want to say um, something negative about when I first saw this is that I was expecting, you know, when I heard it was going to be in 70 millimeter, I was really expecting the, the big vistas and mm. outdoor mm-hmm. scenes. So when they went inside and it became kind of a chamber piece inside, that, that was really, that was really surprising. Yeah. Uh-huh. But again, you know, he, he expects you to, to come to this with a certain expectation. And then he defies it. <laughs> yeah. And there's definitely, I mean, some beautiful use use of the set, you know, the widescreen with. Um, oh, for sure. You know, two shots with the with the characters and well, the amazing scene. In but, the space, Minnie's haberdashery, just the whole set is, um, I don't know. I don't know where I was going, but there's a lot of there's a lot of different. Um, there's a lot of detail and texture to it, and there's a lot of different sort of parts of the the room that have seem to have different sort of purposes or different things that go on in them. Yeah, it's definitely a good use of the space. Yeah, I mean, when they're shooting it, I feel like they you know they really shot the space well. Well, split. But, um, yeah, split screen here, right? Split diopter action, yep. Yeah. But, um, yeah, but just on, on the negative side a little bit, like I, you know, and this isn't, I'm not busting, I'm not busting um, Richardson or Tarantino too hard on this, but, you know, after watching this, it, I have to admit, I came home, rushed home and watched, um, you know, Once Upon a Time in the West. Mm-hmm. There's another mm-hmm. example of the widescreen and just how he used 
use the um, the, the camera and the widescreen. And it's mm. uh, there's some beautiful stuff in here, but I uh, th- there's some parts where I wished it was you, know, you just used a little bit better. Some of the framing was a little bit different. Mm. But that said, I mean, there's there's amazing amazing shots in here. Yeah, I mean, comparatively, I guess not a whole lot of the film takes place outdoors, but it's still like 40, 45 minutes. There's a whole lot of landscapage in that first third of the movie. Mm. Yeah. Mm. But And then a lot of that takes place inside the stagecoach. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, no, it's just, it's interesting to me, like how he, how he used it, how he used the camera. Yeah. And the actors were... It's interesting hearing them talk about it too, like just getting used to how wide it was. You know, as actors, you're not used to, you know, the whole room being seen. Just how big that space is. They can't slouch as much as they normally could. Another thing that I guess you could... Oh, yeah, yeah, totally. But that was one bit that uh, occurred earlier that I guess you could say was a bit of a Hitchcock thing, was uh, two separate antagonists have have different stories about somebody visiting someone's mother that uh, two of the protagonists hear, but... Yeah, it gives the information, uh, the audience information that the characters don't have. Tips you off that they're not telling the truth kind of right out of the gate. I remember there was a... uh, kind of a way station or something in uh, Once Upon a Time in the West that uh, Claudia Cardinal stopped at. Was it, uh, is, uh, are there any sim- any similarities between the haberdashery in that place that you remember, Dan? I haven't seen mm-hmm. Once Upon a yeah. Time in the West in a long time. Yeah, that, not that I remember. Okay. So one thing I was reading is that this this was inspired a lot by by a lot of TV by um, Bonanza, Virginia, and High Chaparral. So there, there were like at least a couple times per season there'd be shows where um, you know a bunch of outlaws would like take over the the Ponderosa or you know one of the locations and then they'd have to fight and get it back. And you wouldn't know who the good guys and bad guys were till the end of the episode. Like what their motivations were. I think, uh, didn't Tarantino even say that um, until the he got to the end, he didn't know who had poisoned the coffee himself? Well. 
You just knew that somebody. Oh, did he? Had... I didn't know that. Yeah. Huh. That's a cool approach to writing. <laughs> yeah, it gets back to him like really letting the story discover itself. Yeah. Like, he says if it starts feeling forced, like he feels like if he's coming up with the story, like he stops. The characters need to tell him what the story is. It's funny. It totally makes me think of, um, I think it was on that same Charlie Rose interview, but him talking about being a kid and playing with his G.I. Joes and, uh, they would cuss, and his mom would yell at him. And he's like, "It wasn't me; it was the GHOs." And I kind of now, now that we're talking about it that way, I can't help but think of that with uh, Tarantino, right? You know, using the N word so much. It wasn't me; it was the characters. <laughs> oh, that's interesting. They told me to write it down, but that is usually how the best character writing happens. You know, like on a on a good day the 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 writers for, for the uh the classic bugs bunny cartoons would come home saying do you know what bugs said today <laughs> yeah yeah kind of reminds me of a um certain pair of sock monkeys that this is true i know <laughs> this is true <laughs> have a mind of their own yeah <laughs> yeah it, it's it just strikes me as impossible and absurd to write a story in a time when the word nigger was used constantly and thoughtlessly and mm-hmm. not use it yeah. Yeah. constantly yeah. and thoughtlessly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. I get it even a little more now. <laughs> I think that Makes was sense. Tarantino's defense of it. Yeah. It's like it's a movie about fucking slavery. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it will end up. Oh. Yikes. To kind of talk the other side of that a little bit, I mean, the argument would be is that it's still a loaded weapon. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Just the use of the word and, and enforcing it. It's like people smoking ah. on screen. Oh, yeah. yeah Ooh, that's good. Speaking of the thing. Yeah. Anyway, Ron, you were saying before Tony's head exploded. <laughs> picked a great time to talk about that, yeah. didn't I? Ooh. Ooh. It's 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 tricky. I mean, that word because we're dealing with a situation that still exists. Race is a completely unresolved issue. Oh yeah. yeah. Oh, um, yeah. And in fact, I would argue has gotten worse since I was a kid, for sure. Or at least um, since the seventies. I think yeah. we had things getting arguably better, and then things took a turn in the eighties and have gone steadily worse since. Um, so. Well, it's, it's just a it's just a mess of a thing. I think it's just getting harder and harder to hide it. Yeah. With mm-hmm. social media and all the things. But uh Wait, is yeah, it is it worse or, or like, is it just that the say, internet exposes it well, more? No, I, I would argue it's worse. Yeah. Um certainly the the, the position of black people mm-hmm. absolutely was getting better. It wasn't it was far from great but you had the civil rights movement and mm-hmm. things were getting better mm-hmm. in the 70s yeah and oh. crack was introduced uh yeah and yeah. it went to shit Dingus. yeah yeah <laughs> however oh, yeah. you want to argue that crack was introduced it was introduced and it mm-hmm. fucked shit up mm-hmm. So, in a link to Pulp Fiction, another character getting shot in the dingus. <laughs> dingus. Johnson. <laughs> and I remember uh, 
the last time we got together, we were watching Videodrome, and I asked if it was uh, bad screenwriting to introduce a character 40 minutes in. And uh, Channing Tatum shows up here. What is it? What are we, like, two and a half hours into this oh, thing? God. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All shot in the dick. Shot, shot in the dick. Shot, shot. This, uh, just as an aside for <laughs> Channing Tatum, whom I'm a fan of, I heard that they're remaking Splash. What? And Channing Tatum's going to be the mermaid. What? <laughs> yep. What? I have to say, I'm pretty fucking happy about that. It's going to be Tom Hanks. Uh, Jillian Bell. No way. From Workaholics. Ooh, I can't wait to see what the men's rights activists are going to say about that. I really hope they put a musical number in it, too. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, he's a great singer and dancer, isn't he? Well, I don't know about singer. He's a great dancer. I think you can sing okay. So I have to admit, though, I have... Um, mixed feelings about him showing up when he does. I mean, it feels a little bit mm. like do sex machina. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. To me. Yeah. To kind of, you know, add add a No I don't think a little bit, huh? Like it is. It's a total Yeah, what yeah, well when you hear you guys' arguments you sex on the machina. on the opposite, but it just felt like a little just from a screenwriting standpoint. It does like, feel like, that way to me. I mean it's not I guess it's not unbelievable that he there would be somebody hiding under that that entire time. Yeah. It, uh, it, it, and it's maybe even a, a, a callback to again to Pulp Fiction with uh, the guy hiding in the bathroom in the apartment. Huh. He kind of makes his appearance right around the same point. I think the third, the beginning of the third act in mm-hmm. Pulp Fiction. Yeah, we're just so, getting but, really ugly. Yeah, no, I mean, like it, it is a little. I found it a little annoying personally. Um, but I also think it might again be one of those things that Tarantino's deliberately playing with, like I'll throw in a Deus Ex Machina and I'll make it work <laughs> or whatever. I don't know. <laughs> That's a beautiful shot. It is. Yeah. There's your vistas. <laughs> vistas. Vistas, cabron. <laughs> It's interesting to me, to me too, just this format, and you know, I, I know this from um, when we made our film. Just that when you edit, and and the how, just all all, all the elements that you're using to make the film, like you have to think about how it's going to be seen, and you have to make the decision, you know, to edit it for a, a theater or for projection, or if you plan on people seeing it on a on a TV, it influences how how you're shooting your scenes and how. And how you're editing, because you just take in the information differently if you're seeing it in a bigger, a bigger vista. So I, I think that I, I love that he is just balls out with this and just expects you to see. And this was made for the roadshow. Like, if you see it any other way, you're not seeing the the true vision that he had for the film, and it and it's your loss. So he's not, hmm. you know, he's not dumbing down the me- medium. It's like he's going for it. You know, he's pushing the medium mm-hmm. as far as he can to get get the most out of it. Which I really like. I think Zoe Bell is kind of my female version of The Rock. <laughs> Just makes me happy every time I see her. <laughs> Thank you for saying that. Yeah. I do like The Rock. <laughs> I, yeah, I was like, it is Ham- not a popular. Uh, uh, well, it is popular, but 
none among the people just that we hang out with. Just don't let him play Jack with. Burton, and I'll be happy. Just, Ooh, just keep yeah. him away from fucking Jack Burton. Yeah. Come on. Anyway, I know. okay. Yeah. I know. But I bet I'll like him doing it. <laughs> so, so that cat is here in the in the flashbacks, but nowhere in the. Um, oh shit! Present. I never saw that before. Oh. So they killed the cat too. Aww. We don't know. We don't know what happened to the kitty. The cat's just hanging out. He's gonna, oh, he's, he's gonna bite his time and eat their corpses when they it's did. over. <laughs> <laughs> That's who's watching from the rafters. <laughs> <laughs> so this is the scene where the film just barely passes the Bechdel test, I believe, or okay. Bechdel test. Well, look at that little guy. He's so cute. <laughs> Oh. Yeah, she does. She does make you happy just to have her on screen, doesn't she? Yeah, Zoe Bell. Mm-hmm. Like even in Death Proof, where everybody thinks she, she's dead, and she just pops up. <laughs> All right, let's go get this guy. <laughs> 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 Is she, I'm okay. is she the one in um <laughs> in Jiggle Unchained? Is she the one that has like the hatchet? Mm, she's the one with yeah, the scarf on the red scarf. Yeah, scarf on her face. Yeah. She was uh <sighs> of course Uma, Dur- Uma Thurman's stunt double in Kill Bill, and she really did slice a baseball in half with a samurai sword. Oh, that's Whoa. so cool. Bitch oh wow. Yeah. She's that's kind of, she's pretty fucking badass. Have you seen the documentary on her? I haven't yet. Gene Epson. Fantastic. What's it called? Double uh, Dare? Yes. Yes. Where is I that? totally got to watch that. Cool. Is that on a Netflix? Or? Uh, it used to be, but it's like it's probably about 10 years old at this point. So It was just shot right when she got the or the, the job doing uh, Kill Bill, so it's older than that, I guess. But Kill Bill was like, what was that, 2002 or I don't know. Is it a reach to uh, call the the chess board here uh, a call back to the video chess game and the thing? No, good. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) So, do do we want to go back and talk about his early career at all? Who Channing Tatum? He's so dreamy. <laughs> yeah, yeah he's really not. Though. No. He's kind of a thumbhead. Yeah, he kind of just looks but, like uh, a you know, yeah muscle head. I'd... Thumbhead. Thumbhead. <laughs> <laughs> it's the first time I ever heard that. Well, like it's just a. <laughs> but yeah, what did you want to say about Channing Tatum's early career, Dan? <laughs> oh no, no, I meant to. I meant to. <laughs> <laughs> Do you like 21 Jump Street or 22 Jump Street better? <laughs> I think we've kind of been bouncing around Tarantino's. Is that what you're talking about? Early yeah. career? Or? I feel yeah, like we've we been have like bouncing 40, around. We have like 40 minutes left. I was just We just start playing Would You Rather at a certain point. (laughs) (laughs) Have you seen uh, any footage of my best friend's wedding or birthday? It was like his uh, unfinished first movie. Is is that out there anywhere? I haven't either. I I assume it has to be. I don't know. 
Is I don't know the way he talks it? about it. I mean, he may have he may have tossed it out. Okay. But he, I mean, he does he does say that was his film school. Was there anybody you know, in it? Anybody famous? Or no, I think he, what he what he do Willie like made it with friends like over like a four year period or something crazy. They would just shoot whenever you know he could get money together and yeah, whenever he could um, afford. And he couldn't get the film developed, and then he finally got it developed and said it was just abysmal. <laughs> but um, but you but know, he, it was but his... he did say that like as it as it went on, he could see himself getting better. Mm-hmm. And he did say it was his film school. So his his yeah. quote is, I think Richard Rodriguez says something similar to this too. It's like rather than spend, you know, sixty thousand for a film school, spend six thousand dollars making a movie, and that's the best film school in the world. Yeah, is what he says. Like just just do it. No. It was called what? My best friend's wedding. Birthday. Birthday. Sorry. Yes, it's viewable on YouTube. Hmm. We are so behind. Hmm. And by we, I mean me, because it was I brought it up in the first place. But yeah, you want to you want to get our ball rolling, Dan? On uh, early, anything you want to say about uh, earlier? No, Tarantino? no, we, we have been, no, we have been, ju- you know, jumping around talking about the different projects. I guess I just, um, I don't know. We can, Ooh, boy. as much or as little as you guys want to. I, I guess okay. I just really, you know, as as a filmmaker, it was definitely it was inspiring for me to go back and look at, you know, how he did it. And just the power, the power of his own convention, convictions, and getting things made. Yeah, for sure. Well, I think you pointed out earlier, like uh, you go back and watch a lot of his movies, and they all stand up or get better with each viewing. It's not like mo- a movie's like, oh yeah, I used to like that movie, and then you watch yeah. it again, it's like, hey, yeah. actually, it kind of sucks. Especially a lot of '90s movies. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What's pretty, I don't know, I feel like there's a true craft. I mean, everything is so meticulous, meticulously thought out. I mean, nothing's arbitrary in his films, which I love. Oh, such a bummer. (laughs) Not the jelly beans. (laughs) Oh, that's who broke the door. (laughs) it's interesting I hadn't really thought about it before but I was just noticing how much the violence in that scene contrasts with the the violence starting with Kurt Russell, mm. which was mm. extremely enjoyable to me mm-hmm. and in a very sort of a splatter movie kind of a way. And, mm-hmm. and that scene wasn't. It was just very real and brutal and mean. Yeah. Well, yeah. You, you these are like, you know, innocence being hurt, you know, yeah. whereas... Kurt um, Russell's a, a fucker. Yeah. <laughs> and, and there's, yeah. Mm-hmm. None of the other, none of the living characters are innocents. 
Man, I was going to say something, but then the violence happened. <laughs> yeah, well, well it's interesting because I, I had read that uh, Matt's is like very, like, he's very against violence in films, actually. Who is? That, um, this this brother here, what's his name? Michael Madsen. Madsen. Yeah. Michael Madsen. Um, yeah, they said in, you know, it was hard for him to do that, um, the torture scene. Oh, Reservoir, Reservoir Dogs. Like, uh. Yeah. I guess he's gotten over it. <laughs> <laughs> it does pay well, the bills. He, he was reluctant to do it even there. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. He, yeah, you do have a sense of he that. He didn't want to shoot Zoe Bell. No. Yeah. He had to sort of look away after that last shot. This is a uh, song by David Hess from the Last House on the Left soundtrack. Right. This is. I think this is what's playing when the, the oh, second girl weird. gets shot. Yeah, isn't it, though? Huh. He wrote a lot of songs for that movie, and some of them are like weirdly inappropriate. Just, what a strange movie Last House on the Left is, man. It really is. Is that the one with all the like the creepy wood rape scenes? Yep. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I remember that one. <laughs> I've never seen it. Yeah. Yeah. I kind of got to the age where I would maybe be, or, you know, the phase in my life where I'd maybe be interested in seeing it, but then... No, yeah. it's 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 it does what it sets out <laughs> like, to do very well, to see but it's just yeah, it's not an enjoyable cinematic experience on any level. Yeah. No, even though it it's good, way too real. Yeah, yeah. way what too cruel. Never bothered. Mm. Uh, I kind of liked it actually, because <laughs> it, it was far enough away from the. It had a pretty great ending. I don't know. <laughs> okay. Is that an Unforgiven reference, maybe? Shooting somebody in the outhouse? Uh, oh. I don't know, but I just heard that they're making a Japanese version of Unforgiven with Ken Watanabe. Huh. Yeah. Huh. I mean, I don't know much about it, but... I hope they make it a samurai movie. I think it is. <laughs> oh, good. Like an old, grizzled samurai movie. Aw. <laughs> So some of the, some of the cool, couple of the cool things I was reading when I was reading about uh, Tarantino's early career was he was talking about how um, movie geeks have like the power of a hundred percent devotion to their art, and they actually have an opinion about things. And he just found that like extremely powerful when he was when he was getting his projects made. He said that having a, having a strong opinion in Hollywood is a superpower. <laughs> In like a, a world full of yes people and uh, just a yeah, bunch of that, bullshit. So yeah, yeah. He said the executives are just guided by information and popular sentiment. You know, mm. what, what's going to sell? Room, you actually have a real a real opinion. <clears throat> yeah, it's kind of the the double edged sword with him. It's like the thing that makes him as obnoxious as he is sometimes in real life, but it's also what gets his movies made so well and so much with his control. Again, I guess that's a notoire personality. Ridley Scott and John Carpenter are known for being headstrong, to say the least. Yeah, that's a that's a generous way to put it. <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah, and we yeah we can talk about that a little bit. Just that 
you know, the personality type to, to get the, to get these kind of things made and to do what he's done. You know, I just definitely burned a lot of bridges with, um, some of his old friends and acquaintances, but, um, Roger Avery, perhaps. Yes. <laughs> Whatever. Yeah. But, to you, that know, dude. I, I know. you know, I had a, I had a creative partner that I think was very, very similar to, um, Tarantino, just from what I know, what I've read and heard from him in his interviews. And it's like that, it's almost like a blind power of conviction to, to get things made or just to believe in your own self and your own opinion, you know, to, to, the, to the point of like being blinded to anything else. And it's, it's interesting because it's, you know, it's definitely a, could be seen as a character flaw, but it's also what gets great works of art made or you know things that are really hard for you know to rally the troops get people behind you know when you have that power of conviction of absolute conviction in yourself and your opinions especially with movie making i think where it's so many people are involved and you're benefiting from all their talents but you have to keep it what you want and not let it be just Mm kind of let the movie make itself i don't think Mm mm-hmm yeah, but you can't like, be a complete well, asshole either, or nobody yeah. will want right. to yeah. be part of, part of it. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, be open to people's thing, but to keep everything on track. Yeah. And like, yeah. this is how I wanted it to be. And Have a vision. You made it look really cool, but, like, yeah. And anecdotally, it sounds like his sets are fun fun to be on, you know? Yeah. So I think, I think he's managed to well, I think, create a good, a good working environment, but mm-hmm. then still be the general you know with his vision yeah I th- like what you were saying earlier about having him being uh studying acting and everything like he understands what it's like to be that on that side of the on that side of the camera so yeah just just really appreciating the craft and maybe that's why his his crews love him you know because he, he probably i'm sure he does he, he does appreciate every aspect of the craft like he's not just well, yeah. ordering people around like he knows what the sound guy is doing and what yeah yeah what the gaffers are doing and what it takes. And he's How... very enthusiastic. I'll bet he expresses a lot of enthusiasm um, for mm-hmm. the work his his crew is doing, and you know, it is fun to watch behind the scenes footage. He does, yeah, narcissist yeah. light on them a little Never, bit. He interacts with them. <laughs> Pulp Fiction, yeah. where he's like sweating his ass off, dancing along to, uh, yeah, yeah, uh, John Travolta only with Herman. Ah. <laughs> is it the does anybody remember the name of the movie theater he took over in LA is it the New Beverly yes yeah I Please. just I I adore what he does I gotta go there one of these film. days yeah yeah, his his love for film and you know um, dedication to preserving things and giving it a place and and all of it is just phenomenal. So is the new Beverly just one screen? I think, but I'm not positive. I think it is. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's great. He's doing that. Yeah, he said even even when he was filming this, he was taking time off to make sure the programming was was right. So is it just a theater where he shows his personal choices for? It's movies his theater. 
Yeah. I, mean, yeah, I think it was, he it was there for a long it. time. And there was a guy, Patton Oswalt has this book that I can't remember the name of, but you can look it up. Um, that's really great about his time of um, being very addicted to going to the movies. And mm. most of it was there. And there was an old guy there who ran it for a long time. Um, and was just always there and programmed things and it was kind of a, an institution and then he passed away a little while back um, and then Tarantino took it over cool now, actually like yeah no it was it was a good year for films last year for, for literal films I think uh, Star Wars episode 7 was shot in, in uh, on film I think The Revenant was shot on film, wasn't it? I could be yeah, wrong about yeah, that. I'm pretty sure it was. Yeah, his his book was called uh, Silver Screen Fiend. Let me see here. Yeah. yeah. Learning learning about life from an addiction to film. Yeah, it's great. Aww. It's great. That sounds fantastic. That's Patton Oswalt. Yeah. Oh, cool. <laughs> His voice would be a little higher, wouldn't it? <laughs> so some some he does with um in a lot of his films is you know play with the off speed off speed scenes so he'll he'll slow everything down and um it's interesting because I really, I really expected to com- compare his work a lot more to um, Peckinpah. I think Peckinpah was kind of the first, you know, one of the first guys to really be be criticized for the violence in his films. And um, Tarantino claims not to be a huge fan, but then I was reading one interview and he said his mom took him to see a, a Peckinpah film like uh, The Wild Bunch when he was like nine years old, which is just an incredibly violent film. So like I think even maybe just you know subconsciously in the way he he absorbs everything i feel like there's definitely a lot of peck and paul and like in his off-speed things when when this when that when all the violence in this scene like went to slow motion yeah yeah it was was very peck and paul yeah it makes sense i mean i i saw friday the 13th when i was eight so there you go yeah i can't help but have have a huge effect on it. i mean especially something like that i mean the wild bunch is one of the most violent films ever made you know if he saw that at eight or nine it's it couldn't have had you know it had to have an effect on him yeah. what's my prom date yeah it feels extra ex machina too because like he's introduced so late and he's he's killed instantly yeah we, we only get a little bit of him in that flashback but he's he's definitely much more of a device than a character. Yeah, he feels the devicey to me.
you know, if it was meant to get sympathy for her, you know, with the brotherly love. Oh my god. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> Oof, brains. Yeah. Uh. Yeah, so Samuel Jackson auditioned for uh, Reservoir Dogs and didn't get the part. Which part? Huh. That's funny. The, uh, was it a detective? Whoever was uh, training? Oh yeah, yeah. Mister Orange. Okay. You know, on the on the rooftop. Never seen him in anything ever again. Well, probably yeah. tons of TV or whatever. But like, if you IMDb'd him, he'd be like, "Oh shit, he's been in like two hundred things." Yeah, Samuel Jackson definitely would have been better though. I think in that role. Yeah, I think that's kind of. In Reservoir Dogs, it's kind of a throwaway role. It would have been more substantial yeah. as Samuel. Maybe that's why he didn't get the part. I don't know. Yeah. Maybe he shifted the weight of the scene. I, I don't yeah, know. I, I don't think... know. Because Tarantino grew to love sure him. does love him, yeah. Yeah. This is the sixth film they worked in together. Oh, my God. I really like that, too, the, the old... Hollywood um, thing of having an ensemble. Yeah, yeah. That you work with over and over again. Mm hmm. Echo. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, the sink held up pretty well, apparently. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. Well, that's pretty great. Ooh. All right, guys, let's finish strong. What do you want to talk about? <laughs> we're, we're kind of we're kind I'm of toast, mirroring man. the uh, the characters here. We're all just kind of laying around bleeding. It's like, oh, <laughs> uh, uh, come on, my balls got shut off. <laughs> I've been vomiting blood for a while. I'll admit it. <laughs> Brains in my hair. I can't feel my ass. Can't feel my ass. <laughs> That's why you need everybody. Uh, everybody, anybody, what, what's everyone's favorite uh, Tarantino movie? I already said Ooh. what mine is. Oh, you're Jackie Brown. Okay. I think I'm still in, in the Pulp Fiction camp, personally. Yeah, probably. It's so good. Yeah, it's mm. so good. I'm probably on the Pulp Fiction. Oh yeah. Yeah, probably Pulp Fiction with Jackie Brown a close second. Oh, yeah. Excuse Halloween me. and the Thing, man. Halloween mm. and the Thing. It's like trying mm -hmm. to choose between the yeah. two. Yeah, I mean... Sophie's choice. My preference for... <laughs> right? My preference for Jackie Brown has nothing to do with thinking it's better than Pulp Fiction so much as it resonated with, with me in a way that, um, you know, just tickled my brain. Yeah, in the I right really place. Like, yeah, it's it's interesting that just that that was a collaborative effort, like him mm. him using a different source material. Mm -hmm. I think just created a different universe in a, in an interesting way. Yeah, because I do I do feel like if there is you know a complaint for his work, I mean for me it's the um, the editing. You know, I mean he's huh. in 
the the self editing with oh, his yeah. material. Yeah, and mm-hmm. I, I definitely think about that too. In the, he in the says at the end of a three hour movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That yeah. that said, I mean, I don't know. I mean, there's not. Yeah, there's not tons in here I would cut. Maybe maybe the uh, beginning a little bit, but mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, who's who's gonna tell? Quentin Tarantino to edit his film. Like, yeah, I mean, out. sometimes really? you know, like in the case of Inglorious Bastards, he was very successful repeatedly at like you know these very long dialogue sections that do maintain your interest and generate lots and lots of tension. Yeah. Well, you know, and is- what it, I mean, but with that, he had like we have very long conversations in one location. Yeah, with the same characters and then glorious <laughs> yeah. bastards. Yeah, you had many different interesting characters in different locations having different languages. Lo- different, yeah, That's true. There's a lot. Yeah. yeah, it's pretty cool that this could still hold one's attention. You know, you have to say I'm For almost liking it more every time I see it. Yeah, I'm. This movie just never loses me. Mm-hmm. It's just I don't know. I can't even quite put my finger on it, mm-hmm. but. It's almost like he manages to make this sort of epic thing out of this small confined space. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And and that's fun to me. Yeah. He's really flexing his muscles here, you know. That's You know, earlier I was talking shit about 90s movies and of course the irony there is that most of those were probably wouldn't have existed without Tarantino. Mm. This kind of like post Tarantino wave of cinema that we got in the nineties. Oh, yeah, God, like, ironically, um, you know, like from what you were talking about earlier, Dan is the the cynicism in so many of those movies. Yeah, yeah, I think about like mm. there's uh, Strange Days, so fucking what, uh, Natural Born Killers, even The Crow to a certain degree <laughs> has a certain what? like glossy cynicism that's to me very nineties. Anyway, sorry, what? Yeah, yeah, I agree with you. And I agree with a lot of the filmmakers that came after him, you know, trying to emulate what he was doing. I, I think really missed <laughs> you know, <it> <laughs> really missed the point a lot on, on what he was trying to say. You know, so they made these like schlocky, violent films. So often somebody will do something, you know, revolutionary or unique that, yeah, the, the people just doing the knockoffs or thinking they get it and can do it, but... I don't know. I've I've been kind of obsessing on the first Montrose record from 1973. <laughs> and I love that record, but it led to lots of shitty music and mm. the career of Sammy Hagar and a whole bunch of stuff that I don't uh, like. But if you sit down and listen to that record, it's it's brilliant. It's wonderful. Okay, this piece of music here, this was actually in the thing, and this really bugs me. Um... Morricone uh, has wrongly said a bunch of times that um, Carpenter only used the the main theme in the thing, and then they did a bunch of other synthy stuff with Alan Howarth. That part uh-huh. is true, but a lot of the orchestral stuff is in there, including this piece. This is when they're uh, rappelling down the ice cliff and checking out the saucer and mm-hmm. dating it back 100,000 years. And that's... if There's one thing that I would say for me is the most annoying about Tarantino. It's his tendency in the past not to just use songs but to use actual score which was written for another film uh, maybe it's maybe I'm taking it personally because I'm a composer but to me like if, if a piece of music is written for a movie it belongs to that movie forever but yeah, I, can't, I, I can't stay mad at Quentin <laughs> 
Sorry, well, you, were, you were gonna say it, Dan? Oh no, no, it's just no, it's interesting because I, you know, um, I didn't realize that, that piece had been used in the thing. So just looking at it, you know, just as a, a cinema goer, you know, taking it in, I felt like it was working. Oh, it definitely. Scene, especially yeah. with the off-speed. Yeah, I'm not so, saying so it doesn't this, work. And they also, you know, I mean, like to be fair too, for Alien, I think they used uh, a piece of Jerry Goldsmith's score for uh, a movie about Freud. Um, during the sleep pod scene at the beginning. So and it happens. Happens you, all the time. As you pointed out earlier, Tarantino is very famous for lifting his soundtracks from yeah. pre-recorded music. So. Yep, yep. Calm down. Calm down. No, I love that. Going back from that to slow, slow mode. Another diopter shot. Yeah. There's also a couple of very well placed diopter shots in the thing. Oscar for Best Supporting Actress? It wasn't her. I know that much. I can't remember. Yeah, she's so great in this though. Amazing. Yeah. I really like uh, Quentin's understanding of Southern pride. It, it just kind of like the Southern morality in, in this guy. Yeah. Oh, he's from Tennessee himself. Yeah. Well, he was, I think they moved when he was two. I always feel like he's so quick to say how he grew up in L.A. Like, I, I don't know. I don't mm-hmm. know if he. And then didn't he spend like a summer there? I think like in fifth grade or something when he was a little bit older. But, but I don't know it. how okay. strong he he uh, connects to his southern roots. Yeah, it's a bit less caricatured in this movie than it was in Pulp Fiction. What is? The uh, the Southern Pride. Mm. Mm-hmm. What was the Southern Pride in? The, the Pawn the Shop Hillbillies? Said? Yeah. Tim Roth is just <laughs> Mr. Oranging on the uh, <laughs> on the floor over there. <laughs> so, is it a dummy or a stuntman, or did they just get Kurt Russell to lie there for the? <laughs> He's a real workhorse. Yeah. He just <laughs> stayed on his mark the entire time. <laughs> <laughs> Uh <laughs> 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 
like a coyote here. Except she's sawing off his arm instead of hers. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, he's doing remarkably well for having had his cock shot off. I know. I know. I would think that he'd be bled to death by now. <laughs> so now is he saying so is uh Tarantino still saying he's only gonna do ten films or Yeah, I think he's uh, gonna do like three more. I never take any of those fuckers at their word. Who said that? Yeah. Kevin Smith said he was gonna retire three fucking movies ago. Oh god, I yeah, wish he had. That would have been I nice. Know. Yeah. Kevin Smith. Yeah. Doesn't Soderbergh <laughs> say the same thing all the time? <laughs> well, is Soderbergh making any new movies lately? Or? I mean, he's working in TV, I think, but. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Maybe he just went to TV. Uh. <laughs> yeah. If he never would have made Tusk. <laughs> God damn. <laughs> so what what yeah. shot are you guys on right now? I think my my sink might be off a little bit here. Yeah, you're a little bit you're a behind little us. You're yeah. very close though. You're like within yeah, half a mm-hmm. second. For whatever reason, we've been getting your audio coming through. Did you turn up the volume on the movie at some point? <gasps> Oh, I did. Well, just a second ago. Can you hear it now? Mm, I don't think no. so. Oh, it it, it was mostly the screaming that we could hear. We're not getting out of here alive, but neither is that thing. <laughs> <laughs> so what's your guys' worst, uh, least favorite? Tarantino film. Oh, uh, Django's the only one that I don't want to own. No pun intended there, but so so. What about it? Didn't you like Willie? Um, I don't know. It just didn't really grab me. Um, I didn't really like or enjoy DiCaprio as the villain. Um, yeah, I don't know. Just kind of unremarkable to me. Also, the the least interesting female character. She was, uh, yeah. I think, the weakest female yeah. he's ever written. She was kind of a damsel in distress. Yeah, maybe that was what it was about it, that there was nothing. I don't know. Yeah. Nah. So I'm going to have not to confess. That, oh, sorry. Go ahead. Oh, not that there has to be a strong female character for me to identify with, because the thing. But <laughs> anyway. Ron. Uh, Confession time. I have to confess, I've I've only seen a few of them. There's a huge number I haven't seen. Oh. So, uh, would we consider Dusk Till Dawn his? Sure. I don't like that movie. He wrote it. Yeah, yeah. I don't it feels, like that movie. It, fe- it does feel like one of his it movies. You don't like it? Of. No. Yeah. No, I didn't like that movie. I'd, I'd be dance. interested to revisit it and see what I think. But I, I fucking I, love that movie. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I like that movie. For, for I mean, like it's it's like that and Pulp Fiction like are my favorite scripts. Those have like the least fat in the dialogue, I think. And uh, the relationship of those brothers and From Dust Till <laughs> Dawn, I just fucking love it. Neck dance. Neck dance. Uh, <laughs> <Dangling> arm. <laughs> 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 
<laughs> That's the last thing you see. <laughs> it's two shitheads laughing up at yeah. you. <laughs> huh. Little angel wings behind totally. you. Ooh, yeah. <laughs> Interesting. Did you say your least favorite, Dan? Yeah. Oh, my least favorite. Um, I don't know. I mean, the skit in the skit in four rooms, but I mean, you can't really. I mean, I I like that as like a little skit, but I can't really. Yeah. I don't know. You can't really count that. Um. Let's see. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe maybe death proof, but I I mean I like death proof, but mm. I'm just trying to think of the one I like the least. I don't know. It's a tough one. I mean he's got a I mean you know, I think the big thing what you wanted to do here, Willie, is talk about his body of work. Mm-hmm. Uh Chris, you know, do you this, have a oh sorry. Yeah. This point. Do you have a least favorite? I think it would be this movie that we're watching at this point. Really? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Yeah. Is it because it's three hours long, Chris? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I've guys... o- I only saw it once in the theater, and that yeah. was like, I was kind of it was I was in the like front row to the side. Oh right, it was yeah. not yeah. a fun way to see yeah. the movie. Yeah, um, and this time there's just like these nerds talking through <laughs> the whole thing. I I mean, it, yeah, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I don't I don't hate it, but I, like it's just. Yeah. yeah, comparatively speaking, I would rather watch any of his other movies than this one. <laughs> <laughs> to anyone out there listening, um, you can't see Chris, but Chris was just, in, in fact, Dan, you can't see Chris, but Chris was just kind of like, he had his head resting <laughs> on one of his shoulders and his eyes were half open yeah. when I asked him that question. <laughs> Brought back from the brink. <laughs> Yeah, I, th- I think this is a, a body of work. Um, he's going to be. I don't know, it's pretty impressive. I mean, I think he's had pretty, and you know, not everybody likes him as, as a director, but I think that people that do. I mean, if you're kind of on on this wavelength and getting what he's trying to do in these films, that it's a, a really impressive body of work. Yeah, I I, I just feel like this movie was his most like his movie, like. Hmm. And like just every single conversation that he wanted to have, and every uh, I don't know, like less. Yeah, I don't know. Like the most self-indulgent. Yeah. Oh yeah. And not in really bad ways because he's so good at it. Yeah. Right. But you know. Yeah, I suppose just it on, is just on a, a entertaining level. Yeah. Just yeah. But it seems like they're all pretty self-indulgent. Yeah. And he's always trying to like mm-hmm. excise things that are but, that are building up. Like you know, imagine if Kill Bill had been one movie instead of he's yeah. splitting up, up into two. Like yeah. So. And you know he's um, on his IMDb he has Kill Kill Bill Volume Three on there. So I don't know. Is that the one <laughs> where? Uh... <laughs> Not the, sure what that's about. Okay, I just want to share with you guys that I love that that's his 
the sort of last thing he does is he reads the letter and then he crumples it up <laughs> and throws it on the floor. And that's kind of a cool, because it all starts with, well, yeah, it all starts with the plan to hang her and the Lincoln letter. And that's, those are some really significant character pieces at the beginning or in yeah. plot pieces at the beginning. So, so what do you think he's that's really nice saying ending. with that? Just about our like manufactured identities or like how we, huh. what, what do you think he's saying with that? With the Lincoln letter? Yeah. And just, well, just Samuel how he... L. Jackson like <laughs> explained it. <laughs> no, no, <laughs> but how he plays, yeah. how Goggins like throws it away, like reads it. Oh like, yeah. This beautiful poignant thing, knowing mm-hmm. that it's a fabrication. Mm-hmm. You know, the, this mythology that he, that he built, mm-hmm. but like still, still think, obviously thinking it was beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he, it's kind of, the two of them are unlikely friends at the end. <laughs> it's a buddy movie. It's about as unlikely yeah. as you can, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so they, they both live and it's going to be a, uh, a cop buddy movie. <laughs> I, I did just notice there was a grip name whose nickname was the rock and that made me think of when in death proof mm-hmm. she made she made out with a grip who looked like the rock ah. whoa uh, i'll bet whoa dude <laughs> i'll bet that was based on a real guy then yeah so maybe the guy's still working grip for him yeah. <laughs> nice <laughs> oh man that must be another thing about working with Tarantino that, you know, why people enjoy working with him is he, he, uh, he's got a lot of these kind of inside jokes, I think, or, well, they're not really inside jokes cause. Oh, there's plenty. Yeah. Can, yeah. Uh, but I mean, Daryl Hannah is, is named L driver and yeah. uh, kill bill, which is like, uh, one of his trusted coworkers. Uh, uh, Sarah, uh-huh, Sarah uh-huh. L. Driver. Uh-huh. I forget I what her. When I say they're not really inside jokes, what I what I mean is to say is that um, they're not like inside jokes in the sense in which inside jokes are told between people who know the jokes and everybody else is kind of like bored, you know. But yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. You wouldn't you wouldn't know that unless you were. A geek. <laughs> <laughs> well, one, one last geek note that I that, that I wanted to throw out and that I like is the um, do it. I mean, there's a lot of different meanings with the hateful eight. You know, it being his, you know, pretty much eight characters in the film and the um, his eighth film that he made. But I like the callback to um, Federico Fellini's Eight and a Half, oh. which is about you know a director. Wait. Are there eight characters in the film in that room? Can there's, we count? There's actually ten. So there's yeah. the, if you count the driver, there's nine, and if you count uh-huh. um, the brother under the floor, there's ten. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. But the, uh huh. Uh huh. all the people that got shot in the haberdashery. I mean. But the driver. Oh, they don't count. The yeah, driver yeah, yeah, yeah. wasn't hateful, so he doesn't count. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> how many hateful people? Yeah. <laughs> Oh, that's right. I forgot. He used music from Exorcist 2 in this also. Oh, <laughs> oh I know he's a, he's a big fan of Friedkin. So he talked about uh, screening The Exorcist at the New Beverly and just being in love with it. 
That's funny. I heard Friedkin being interviewed, and and he was talking about how um, Tarantino asked him if he could borrow a thirty-five millimeter print, and Friedkin said, "Sure, as long as I don't have to watch it." <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, we made it, you guys! We made it. So proud of you. Oh God. <laughs> And you uh, out there listening, we're, we're proud of you, too. <laughs> Thank you for, for making it all the way through this with us. 